This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. I'm sorry. I got a little greedy this morning. You know, we haven't, we don't talk all week. You know, I'm in class, yeah. I'm in office hours on Monday, usually in the chat, you know, but we don't talk all week. So when I get a chance to talk with you, I'm like, and then, and then this happened. And then, um, and then I want to tell you about this. It don't got nothing to do with class, but we just same kept here. it up. Same here. And then we bring a great deal of it over here, but we have to, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we between Saturdays, we ripping and running. Although I did hear, uh, have you heard of this movement called the the NAP movement? Did you tell me about that? NAP? NAP, yeah. The, the sister, oh, I won't be able to put my hands on her book. She um, she wrote a book about this, the NAP revolution. Uh, I was introduced to it at the uh, Moreland Spengarn Writer Symposium. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, this was on Friday, no, Thursday. Uh, ben Talton, Dr. Dr. Ben Talton, the new director of Morning Spin Going, held her book up. It's being released this week. It's a black woman, um, you know, uh, counselor, psychologist, and she's talking about rest. In fact, the name of the book is something like Rest is Revolutionary. Right. It's a whole movement. Do you see her? I'm looking at it. It's the Nat Ministry. Nat rest Ministry, that's her. Rest is resistance. Rest is resistance. Now, we all know, y'all, that Karen and his sister gonna be in conversation at some point very soon. But I mean, I just thought about that because you know she's like, "Y'all killing yourselves? What you doing?" It's it's way beyond quiet quitting and just doing, no. This sister is grounding this whole thing in like study and it's, do you see you laughing? So you must be reading. Yeah, I'm looking at Trisha Trisha Hersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a finder. I'll That's find her. I know you will. That's why I said. <laughs> I wish yeah, I could. This is what we're supposed to be doing talking with people. Um. Hersey, I'm gonna, gonna definitely reach out to the sister. Uh, look, you know, but you you don't sleep, you nap. So I know you you leaning in. <laughs> so so what what's what's your take on it? The nap ministry. Well, I was you know I was there in real time, having taken a nap in the middle of the night, <laughs> and uh, it was right after uh, the the panel that I moderated. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about that too in a minute. But I thought, why not? We had to be open. Right. So and it's a sister. And so, you know, I got the book and it's over there. I just put I mean, I haven't had a chance to sit and, and look, look at it. But I think, sure. I mean, in fact, the irony is that in the social structure we live in, that's a revelation. That's not a revelation to anybody around the world who's not caught up in this West mess. Everybody, sure. they go to sleep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They take a midday nap too. <laughs> what they call that a siesta? Yeah, yeah. No question. In the Spanish speaking, if you go to Africa, you, you know. I mean, if you got a meeting at nine, no, you got a meeting when we get there, and then yeah. you like some coffee. <laughs> before we, before we, uh, before I hit live, we were just talking about that. You know, like mm, we in our time, and no. you know, and it's not disrespectful. I don't want to be just. So I'm like, I'm battling with a lot of social norms, whatever that means, and what we've been taught, whatever that is, and what I know in my spirit to be true, which is, you know, we show up when we show up is right on time. You know, we are here and community is right on time. Everybody that's here is supposed to be here. Uh, you know, there's no anxiety around, we need more, we need to do this, we need to do that. There's no algorithmic uh, push here at all. We are operating in our own in our own ancestral drumbeat and it feels it feels right there's no stress and i remember saying to you like episode we're at episode 135 i remember 
-hmm. around 10 or 12, I was like, Dr. Carr, when you get up and you don't feel like doing this anymore, we're not doing it. Whenever you get up and we, we just not doing it anymore because there can't be an obligation. You too, it's us. I mean, it's us. And it's not an obligation. Well, it's, it's, it's work, but it's work. In the words of my brother Rasuli Lewis, who was one of uh, the collective and the uh, committee for a unified Newark um, with Barack, with the Barakas, they used to say, and it's a saying they still use the old black nationalists, Pan Africans. Kazi is the blackest of all. Kazi means work in Kiswahili. So when you come up on an old head and you be like, you know, y'all working, y'all building something, you're like, whoa, we're tired. Somebody say, Kazi is the blackest of all. Remind me of Baba Hannibal Africa out of Chicago, meaning you don't kill yourself, but you you work at the thing you love and you demonstrate what you love by your work as we talk about the Egyptians say. So Kazi is the blackest of all. It's work, but it isn't work in the Western sense. And I, we never get tired of working for liberation, working for each other. This is a pleasure. I look forward to Saturdays with you and with everyone. <laughs> you know, I, It's like Christmas because you don't know what's going what's gonna to be unpacked. You yeah. know, like what's in this box? What's Isn't it interesting how we've moved the rhythm? I mean, at the height of the pandemic, when everybody was trapped and to the social structures with the algorithms and stuff, we getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people every week and all kind. And now, you know, from then to now, we've moved almost like, well, since last Saturday, what's going on in the world and how do we plug that into our ongoing rhythm? And it's been quite comfortable. And it is. Like you said, it is penetrating and re- I won't say penetrating. That's the wrong word. That's that's a little too aggressive, a little fallow century. It's resonating. It's resonating. And when you combine that with the fact, happy eighth anniversary, eight years old on serious, everybody's been talking about it on social media. And I want to ask you how it feels. I mean, you feel that resonance because it, it, things that are echoing out are echoing back in. It's all rippling. And that's just fortifying. It's it's very life-giving and nurturing. Mm. Yeah. As you're, as you're talking, um, I was reviewing something. I'm going to just give a little peek in. Um, there's a trip being planned that will be uh, available and open to the Nubians. Um, to mm-hmm. I saw the first, uh, you and Dr. Beatty are going to be, uh, I guess. What, what, Mario, Mario, Beatty, Mario Beatty leading that. He always put my name on it first. I'm like, why you put my name on it? This is, I mean, but yeah, I mean, we, we're together. I think we are an excellent team and we have to, in fact, uh, Fatou Sal from Detroit. She's a recent graduate of Howard who just finished graduate study. She's teaching at Howard now. Her mother, she came up at the writers' conference, and, and I'll mention Phil Roundtree in a minute, who also came down from Philly. But Fatou said, Dr. Carr, we are all going. So her mama, her whole family. So I'm trying now. We got to figure out, Karen, between us, how we gonna manage all these people. <laughs> that's what I, I said. He was like, Well, there's no limit. I was like, How do nah, we see? That's what I said. We got to help our brother because Mario, see, that's what I'm saying. We like, Oh, bro, <laughs> I was like, Do you realize, like, how many people are signed up in the first week? Like, yeah, well, you got to put a limit on it. But yeah. I, I, I mentioned it because this week, um, in Nubia, I had a conversation a year and a half ago with Professor Brad Grant on how the Giza pyramid was built. And, and before there was a Nubia, uh, I wanted to frame the building of a thing because we asked people to bring their brick, right? We asked people to come with their brick and there's there these pyramids have existed and the ones in Egypt aren't even the oldest, right? No, the ones no. in the Sudan are even older and there are more of them. People don't even talk about that. The farther still- you go into Africa, the more pyramids you find. They ain't going north toward Greece. Greece ain't built nothing. They just came and saw what happened and, and made up a theorem and then somebody named it for Pythagoras and now you sit in the high school ge- geometry messed up in the game because they ain't do nothing. Right, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Oops. 
Yeah, look, look, let me get my joint. You know, I got my new year joint ready. What you say every time they say to the, no, to the colonizers, drink. Drink some water. <laughs> drink some water, right. Yes. We'll be passed out. Anyway, so yeah, you said so, you wanted to prepare folks. Yeah, yeah because I'm, in my mind, like, I feel we have stripped, been stripped of all of our memory. You know, we talk about this a lot of how things, you think thousands of years ago, People with no, none of the technology we have today figured out how to build structures. They weren't grain silos. <laughs> build structures that still not just stand today. And they've tried to destroy and dismantle and pillage and rape and go through and take apart. And they still can't figure out the obelisk. They can't figure out how to build these pyramids that, you know, and, and I said, I wanted to talk to an architect. So yeah. you, you introduced me to, to Dr. Uh, Brad Grant who's brilliant and he methodically walked me through and we, you know, I was holding on to that, you know, and we just um, released it this week in Nubia for people to, to watch, watch that conversation. Because as you think about your own brick that you're bringing in, it's yourself. Think about the placement, think about the planning, think about what it is that you want to build. Don't just come rushing in and try to, you know, get involved in something. It takes time. It. Yeah. It takes time and it's, and it's okay. It took that 20 years to be built. Yeah, it took man. 20 years to be built, but it's still standing thousands of years later. So the way I'm here's, the mind, here's another mind blowing thing. It wasn't even about the building. The process is how you build community. Everybody worked on that has a stake in it. And they're all now been gone. They've been ancestors. So what we see is uh, a material kind of, uh, what should I say? A trace of the real issue. The real thing they were doing was working together. That was the real permanence. So all we're seeing is, look at that pyramid. Now, see, you just looking at what happened. That's a footnote. The real thing is, let's go to work together. That's the, gen that's the genius of it. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, as we're planning this trip and people, you know, it's nice to go to Egypt. It's nice. It's a nice trip to go with people. But I want people to go with that in mind, like what you're, what you're going to come away with and what you're going to bring forward. That those people did thousands of years ago how are we going to take that baton yes. and build for thousands of years in the future in our own minds and images right you know not through anyone else's lens and we'll, and, and the beautiful thing about it is you're, you're absolutely right i mean every time i've been what we go everywhere first of all what we're doing is following in the path laid down by asa hilliard and so asa very deliberately after years of study and work with elders like Dr. Ben and John Henry Clark, so many others who have been going, you know, Jacob Corrales, his cousin out of Chicago and that whole crew. Asa planned out a journey through the Nile Valley where we go the places we want to go. And what we find is many of the places we go, we're the only people there because we know where to go. Now, I don't know, uh, Professor Hunter, we're going to have to maybe, you know, help our brother uh, Dr. Beatty because he always want to go somewhere else on top of that. And then like, he's been trying to get to well, Tel Aviv for years. Where, I, where I already added, I added another destination. He's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, like, no, no, no. I'm so, oh Lord. Oh no. Can we fly to uh, the bottom, uh, to the top and then uh, oh, go up? Cause I want to go, I want to sail up the Nile, you know, yeah. the, you know, like that movie I saw, you know, that was, yes. I want to uh -oh. sail up. I want to all right on a boat so everybody everybody who is seeing this please understand that i am outnumbered so now <laughs> I, I found out today right now in real time that 
y'all two is thick as thieves on this because this man we already go like a few dozen places and he always how often do you go and this oh, may no. be the only time so i'm gonna go i'm gonna see everything i'm gonna I see agree. i'm going no, no i agree time. i agree in fact this is this is one of the very few things i will say that came out of my mouth that occurred to me and it was only and in fact i will attribute this to students one time we were we were we pulled up in the buses and by the way we're not going anywhere near a thousand people but in 1985, when they went, no, 87, when they had the ASCAP conference over there, they took a thousand people. But that was a whole nother thing. That's that's what transformed the Nile Valley. So black people from now on, when you go to Egypt and they be like, oh, brother, sister. Yeah, that started as the result of the 1987 trip where people went from everywhere, uh, including uh, a, a pair of brothers, young brothers, uh, the, the nephews of Leonard and Rosalind Jeffries, and that would be Hakeem and, and Hassan Jeffries. So the congressman was on that trip. He was a little boy at the time. Anyway, so, um, but we were over there one time, and these young people, these young people, so you you tired? Already? So we're getting off the bus, and we're going into one of the temples, and one, one of the young people said, oh, I don't know, Dr. Carr, I think I'm going to stay on the bus. And I said, you don't go halfway around the world and not go the last two steps. You know, you don't go halfway around the world and not go the last two steps. So come on. And then, of course, of course, we got back on at, oh, I'm so glad. Right. And it, and if you had stayed on this bus, you would have felt a little bad. And we all came back. You would have felt worse tonight, worse tomorrow, worse than that when you get back to the United States. And 20 years from now, you're going to feel worse than that. In other words, it's only going to get worse. Come on. <laughs> you know, my mom was, my mama had, uh, for her 80th birthday, we took her. My sister, Gussie, you know, was like, okay, they went, my mom went in everything. She went in Teddy. She went in the Great Pyramid. She went in all the temples. And I've seen 75, 80-year-old brothers and sisters get up with Miss Alma Kemp, who was the dean secretary in co-ops. And we took them 80 students from Howard the year after ASME transition and Ken Nunn and, 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 and Nefertari and their two daughters went. And they, they are, the two daughters are grown now. In fact, everybody went in everything. And don't worry, y'all. It's real flexible. So when if, if you if you don't feel well, we always ready. The people we roll with, in fact, they kind of run Egypt. Somebody left one of, the, one of the kids left their laptop in Cairo. By the time we got to Luxor, the the computer was at the desk at the hotel. What the how the hell did they just beat us? We we don't got in a plane and the child. Oh no, y'all ain't gotta worry about nothing. Just keep breathing. <laughs> we, we got that. Our people on lock in the Nile Valley. So. Uh. So, so for my eighth anniversary, I changed up the music. Um, you know, yeah, because it's you know, music is powerful. I was just I was thinking, I was driving, dropping my car up this morning, and I was thinking about you know learning most of the things that I learned came through art and through television, whether it was Morgan Freeman teaching me how to sound out my letters. Or, you, they don't know about that, they don't know about that. <laughs> Or, or the count teaching me how to count on Sesame Street, or or Schoolhouse Rock teaching me what a bill is, or a conjunction, or mm-hmm. you know my times tables. Man, maybe it reinforced what I learned in school, but those are the things I remember. And so, you know, for us being in class, you know, so many people come up and say, you know, this has been transformative because of the way in which the information is delivered, and it sticks with you when it's brought forward in a, in a certain kind of way. So I'm looking forward to this trip because I know who's leading it and you will be there. So we'll all be there. Yes. 
And I know, oh. I know what you're brewing in here. Look, y'all get ready for this global, uh, for the global majority to be coming to you live. From I'm, I'm sure you already got all kind of we. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. <laughs> this is gonna be. Yeah. I mean, crazy. I mean, there's there's a team in Jamaica right now scoping out our next uh, healthy, wealthy, wise conference, sending me all of this through WhatsApp. I'm like. She was like, you know, the restaurant is authentic when the when the hard dough bread is the bread, you know, when it's <laughs> bread, when that's the bread, you know. And the bread. Like, Yo, I'm like, I can't wait. So next year is gonna be powerful. No, it's, gonna, um, it's gonna be powerful. I, I hope. I know she won't be able to do it, but uh, but she's still in good health. And I'm thinking about uh, um, uh, Nana Adelaide Sanford, who of course was on the Regents State Board of Regents and and the uh, Regents of Education in New York. She went with us. Um, and you know, she just published her memoir actually. And she's always just so amazing, a master teacher. And she was with us when we went to, uh, Kim at the year Ace of May transition and a major part of our travel. And this is for any group that travels. Of course, we learn more about ourselves and each other than we do about any place. Any of us go when we travel, but when we're in the Nile Valley, we, in the daytime, we go everywhere. We go everywhere. We go to, you know, of course, the major sites that people think about. The pyramids, you really talking about the pyramids of Giza, Khufu, Khafre, Menkare. Um, we go to all the temples, places that a lot of people don't go. Menefer, um, the White Wall. People call it Memphis after the Greek, as in Memphis, Tennessee, by the Mississippi, but that ain't the Memphis. We go to the Memphis, um, the administrative capital uh, of Kemet at the time. Um, you know, we go, of course, to um, Epetisut and Lower Opet or as the Greeks might call it, Luxor um, and Aswan. We go down to near this border to Sudan, Aswan, um, that they called Abu, land of the elephant, because, you know, everything in Kemet is from inner Africa, nothing from the Mediterranean in Europe. So let's just be very clear. This is an African society. But everywhere we go, we spend the days, whether it be in the on-site places, uh, Abidus, which is... I can't even describe what Abidus is in terms of its beauty, its power. It's just ge the genius of African people. This is the uh, complex that was begun by Seti I and finished by his son, Ramses II. Um, Abu Simbel. I mean, I won't go through all of them because I couldn't. Like I said, we keep adding stuff. And as we see, we're going to add something else. But every night, um, you know, we come back to where we're staying. We eat, you know, relax. And then we convene for an hour or two to have conversation and to prep for the next day. And there's a there's a curriculum involved. You get that way in advance before we ever leave wherever we're from and get on the planes to go. But at night, it's more than the content. It's more than the language lessons. And of course, for those in Nubia and narrative, of course, everybody who's involved in that will be able to do translations in real time. It's a very different experience when you can, as in the words of Jacob Carruthers, uh, talk with your ancestors without interpreters. When I tell you the magic, and by the magic, I say magic, let me use the, the, one of the words from Metanature, Heka. Uh, the, the, it doesn't need to translate really into marriage, that kind of spiritual connection. When you walk into, say, the colonnades that were built in the 25th dynasty, so-called 25th dynasty, Shabaka, Pianki, Taharka, and you see these columns just rise into the air and you're just looking up like this, and, all, and they've got Metanature written on all the sides. And because the Egyptian government and the country rely so heavily on tourism, you are required by law to have a tour guide. But because of the people that we travel with and the formations uh, who are headquartered here in Atlanta and also in, in, in the Nile Valley in Cairo, uh, 
the people who we get as guides are basically there so we don't get fined to uh to to to, to quote beast mode i'm just here so you don't get fined <laughs> so we don't get fined because we don't need a tour guide in fact the guides that we have we have long-standing relationships with even when they retire the master is our man baba farouk uh baba farouk carney who lives on elephantine island in aswan and that's where we go to see our friends and, and family when we go to the the nubians you know and people say oh where are y'all going here well asa and, and did that following dr ben and them we have family over there with including the children you know when my nephew went ellington you know he's a soccer player he over there in the uk right now hanging out with the caribbean africans and the continental africans who are in the uk just soaking up all kind of stuff but when he was uh there he brought some soccer balls you know but we bring everything educational materials we make a financial you know investment i mean we, you know these are people and they're nubians meaning everybody keep their mouth shut nobody knows who's from here and who's not these african people but um well i, I said all that to say that Farouk, the elder, now his 80s, um, he's in Eswan. So he would come, he comes and we sit with him. And I'm, I'm just saying all this to, to, to just kind of give a glimpse and a sense of this community. But the guys that come with us, and we've known all of them for years, you know, they come and they don't they don't not only share what they know, which includes a lot about contemporary Egyptian life, very important, but then they learn it. So we always have like book lists. They'd be like, we can't get this book in and that. Can you bring it? Yeah. So Mario, stay with stuff, bringing stuff. I mean, in other words, this is community and everybody brings their brick. That's really what I'm going to. Adelaide Sanford, we just sit around and listen to her. We're going to Pyramid tomorrow. But tonight we get to hear how Mama Adelaide now worked those politics to get this curriculum. Here. So, so don't think you coming just to learn. You coming to be. We're in community. That's the beautiful thing. So, um, and how ironic and wild because Nubia just turned a year old our nubia yes silent k in august yes had no idea there would be a metanetra class when we started had no, no idea that we would even be traveling together when That's it started right. but right. for the nubians to be in nubia in august next august it's and to be able to tell it, look on the wall and see the sisters sitting on the standard which is a necklace translated nebu the guys can't translate it. So, so everybody going, oh, Nebu, there it is. That's Nubia right there on the wall. <laughs> For those of you who are in Nubia right now, it's more than a thousand people this yeah. morning. Um, if you're new, because we have a lot of new people um, who are just joining us, figuring out the chat, just do a search for Meta Nature, uh, M E T U N E T H E R. And all of the lessons are there. Start with lesson number one. The way Dr. Beatty is, I mean, he's a master teacher in this master he's methodical you ain't gonna yeah. be able to pop in and ask him questions you're not going you're not going to interrupt him he's going to give you chapter and verse and it's going to be and i was like oh this is different this is it's completely different than dr Carr's style but it, it is absolutely perfect for learning this craft and it's a craft it's spiritual it's something i didn't even expect you don't have to know how to draw but when you start doing those glyphs and you start understanding the meaning it's going to get in your soul. It's going to be transformative. Start with lesson one and go all the way through um, before August of next year. Get your lesson on. So I just want to. No, no, no. I think, I'm glad you raised that because our styles are very different. I mean, we are the children of Theophile Obenga. I mean, he's one of many parents we've had. And from Obenga, I got 
the the broad kind of connecting the dots piece of Obenga. Theofalo Obenga is the greatest linguist we have, period, in the world. He walked into Dakar, Senegal at the at the meeting of convening of uh, intellectuals of the Africa and the diaspora and got a standing ovation in Dakar because before you open his mouth. I mean this is the, this is this is Shake on the Jokes Junior Prodigy protege. So when I did my dissertation, he tried to fight me because when we started Meta Nature, we all do everybody er, just like everything else, everybody want to come because he's a celebrity. This is like 1994. By the end of the semester, the class had been shrunk by like 80%. And after class was over, it was four of us. He said, y'all my students. And we all took our PhDs with him. That was me, Mario Beatty, Valethea Watkins, and Troy Allen, who is now ancestor. So it ain't but three of us <laughs> left who took. Now, he wanted me to go study Metanetra after I finished my PhD. And I said, I love Metanetra. Don't get me wrong, because you're absolutely right. Roosevelt Roberts told me this out of Comedic Institute. Uh, told all of us this. He said, when you start doing the glyphs, they start talking to you. And that is the feeling when you start drawing and you don't have to draw, but you will sit there and you start. And then it's just like, you realize at that moment, you're back there. <laughs> you having a kind and, and the concepts are African in the sense that, look, I'm grateful for these 26 characters that the uh, Egyptians gifted the Phoenicians and it got mixed with the Greek and the Hebrew. And we now have an alphabet. And that is indeed an African creation. Very grateful for that. But these glyphs are much more resonant with our ways of knowing and our cultural meaning making. And so they're symbols, but it's art at the same time that is spiritual. And they start talking to you. So anyway, I'm, you know, I'm doing my homework. I'm turning in. He, he called me to his office. Boom. Good. Right. In French. That's him. Congolese, French, Negro, African. Boom. Uh, you, you, you need to go. You go. We send you to jail. You learn metanature. Uh, I said, I'm learning metanature from you. He said, no, no, no. We must be. But see. Then he realized I wasn't going to do that because that's not how my mind works. I need this skill, but I'm connecting it to something else. I'm coming in there with the Timberlands and the hoodie and the baseball cap. I'm that dude. So he said, okay. So he eased up off me and said, okay, we're going to deal with ideas. So my dissertation was on philosophy of history because he could deal with the concepts differently in the connections. Mario, Mario Beatty is like Obinga. And like shake on the jill. These Negroes are machines. All you got to do, boom, boom, boom. So when you get in that Menage class, as you say, he's not going, he, that's Obinga. I'm telling you. Was, <laughs> at first, it was, you know, it's interesting. Um, people who listen to me on the radio, they or even those of you who watch on YouTube, you don't quite understand. You know, my personality is, uh, is not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not going to be like, hey, show, 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 show. I'm not that person, right? Uh, and it's it's like off putting, you know. So, oh, you're rude. Am, am I rude or am I direct? And, and is the directness, or what is it? you know, rude. so so it was, you know, I'm used to you, and I was like, ah. by the second lesson, though, Dr. Carl, I was like, this man is a mother freaking genius. Oh, it's <laughs> no like to get me out of the same, <laughs> y'all got that thing together. And I'm a short attention span, you know, when it's I'm like, yeah, okay. okay, come on, come on, let's let's you know, and he is going to methodically talk to you until you freaking wake up and you're like, I get this. No it's amazing. It's am so we, you know, I'm saying we have to challenge ourselves. We're all used to a certain thing. And right now we're used to debauchery and ignorance and a whole bunch of stuff that we've gotten used to, to the point where that's our norm. But let's, you know, let's, let's be a little more nimble and be open and, and get used to some other things to round us out and make us more broad as human beings. And I'm here for it. So I, I'm, I appreciate, thank you 
uh, for the introduction. And that Metanetra class is everything. And when we go to Egypt and are able to go into these edifices, these spaces and read what our ancestors wrote and know because we study and it's not hard. And then um, each other. And that's talking. really the genius. We're yeah. talking with them and with each other. And that's what blows the mind. I mean, we it's so funny when we go places that everybody goes and you see the other tour groups. It could be the Germans. It could be the Chinese. It could be the French. It could be the Americans, which when we go in August, uh, typically that's the season when the price point is the lowest. So you don't really see the Americans. They'd be hanging out other places, Shamar Shek and Alexander. But the, it's a lot of people. We saw we see them, and when then after a couple of days, sometimes we be in the same place at the same time. You look around and you see their their guide is trying to talk, and they and they, what is oh here come okay, these are our friends. Oh, that's the Koreans. Remember when they were here yesterday? Because they start realizing, and then you and every once in a while a brave one will say, You you can read that? Yeah. We can read that. Really? What does that say? And they get a pay this man over here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's crazy because it, I mean, it's it's mm, we end up teaching everybody. <laughs> I mean, didn't we always? You know, always. It's a return to normal. Let's go. Let's go. All right. So what? What do we? What do we do with? You know, how do we solve a problem like Kanye? How do? How do we, <laughs> what? What do we do with this? Distraction. Oh. That. Oh. Hmm. I, well, mean, I mean, we don't we don't deal with uh, sister. I don't know. Do you know Salome Shatilla? That's my first time meeting her. She I writes the New York Times, uh, critic, uh, professor. Yeah, she very interesting sister. She was one of the panelists uh, on uh, this Thursday when I was at the Writers Conference, along with uh, our friend Mark Anthony Neal, uh, no, Kianda no. Yamada Taylor, and others. But. You know, she was talking about growing up in an African-centered school. And then she said, I was at the Black Nationalist phase of my life. You know, initially I grew that. And then she said, you know, I guess the kids now would call it Hotep. And I was like, oh, oh no, we're not going to go. She said, no, no, I don't mean it. I said, I know you don't mean it, but I'm just saying that's part of the distraction. She wasn't doing it, but she wasn't doing it, but she made a point. It, it kind of inadvertently, but I'm, I'm raising it here because that is the part of the distraction. When people talk about, oh, y'all talking about Egypt, y'all, when them Hoteps. Okay, you shouldn't open your mouth, put your brain on display like that because you have been sucked into the distraction. Using Hotep as a pejorative is really a result of people who have used the whole notion of studying Africa uh, in the wrong ways. They're not slowing down. They're not being methodical. And they say, I just need another thing that's going to let me project out either project my insecurities or I'm such a such a rush to learn about our people and then they flip it into something else they're trying to hit on uh sisters and they trying to and so in defense people use the word hotel to say that's them people that you know are trying to get over but then the word escaped that that internal governance conversation and got into the social structure and now people use it as a pejorative who for me you know my blade is very deep I don't really but it sets me off because I'm like, y'all really don't want that work. And I'll be ready to, and this is an internal black conversation and I'm trying to suppress myself. But when you start talking about distractions, when our people self-harm like that, take our memory or abuse us because we are in relationship with them, however tangential, that elicits a kind of rage. You know, Kanye, man, make that man take his meds. Or, you know, he just getting ready to sell something else. But but is you, 
Bruh, somebody was going to choke him out. No, 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 no violence. Yeah, but he just run around and look at all these people, Tucker Carlson and them, they use it. It elicits a kind of race. So when you ask, what do we do with it? I'm wondering what, I mean, because I know you've been feeling this all week, which is, so, yeah. And, and again, I, I I don't straddle worlds. My world is very clear. No it's very clear focused. I use the tools. Um, I'll use anybody's tools to build the world that I want to live in. No question. That said, you know, I struggle with this, Dr. Carr, the benefit, like the benefit of reaching people, right? Because one thing is for sure in this current situation, and I, I learned this early on, you know, there's no such thing as bad press, right? Oh, it, really isn't. it really isn't anything. And we, we're seeing it now. Um, someone tweeted, can y'all give equal time to Raphael Warnock? Because we learned in 20, you know, with, with Trump that all press is good press. Even if it's grabbing them by the pussy, even if it's a, it, because it's a constant, what is a reminder of is this person's relevant. So when it comes time to vote, I'm going to, you know, this is the name that's in my head. It's why music is so powerful. It's why the art that I was talking about is so powerful because of the repetition and it gets in your soul. So it's Herschel, 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 even mm. if it's, and, and all you hear, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. For the people who are, who are not conscious, still in that matrix, plugged into the machine, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. It doesn't matter if it's embarrassing. It doesn't matter if his son comes out. It doesn't matter that Kanye, he's on the largest, most watched television show, news cable outlet, on the highest rated show. It doesn't matter that he is a whole ass, needs his medicine person right now, trying, right. To, trying to be nice. No. So I, I'm struggling with, you know, leaning in. And and because it's, it's it's a formula, right? Anybody can study the formula and you can go out there. Everybody in here can be an influencer. You can have a million followers. It's a formula. The hard thing is to 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 actually feed people and, and wait for them to realize that they're being fed yeah. and then wait for them to say, oh, OK, this is better than that. And then wait. That's that 20 year process of building that pyramid. Right. So. Yes. So I struggle. I mean, Kanye's effective. I mean, he's been made a billionaire, somebody that is clearly struggling with a lot of things. Yes. And yes. yet, and yet, y'all, some of y'all walking around with Yeezy. Some of y'all went to his church with no scriptures. Some of y'all out there buying $50 socks. Some of y'all out there still you know, <laughs> buying music that is saying all kinds of things right now that it just, you know. And some of y'all are like supporting the nonsense because he's he's black. Exactly. And that blackness comes from the social structure. It is not something generated from within that type of, but the support, that way of knowing comes from us. It, it, it We see a connection with him, but it's not, or if it's somebody just put in the chat, in fact, in Nubium, just looking down as you were talking and, and somebody put that she doesn't think he is, uh, it's a question of mental health challenges. She thinks he's a, he's a petulant child and he's been told he's a genius and he believes it. And I'm saying I don't rule that out. Either. Isn't that something sick with that? Like to be 40 something years old, you know, and to still operate like you're seven? That's 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 uh well, I mean developmentally delayed. That's there's something not healthy with that. No, well, sure. Community and community has a great deal to do with it. I mean, for a man to say he doesn't read books, and his mother was a whole professor and his father too, when they were teaching at the Atlanta University Center. And then she's in Chicago for decades as not only a professor, but a professor of black studies. 
in Chicago State, Dr. West, Donda West, he even started Donda Academy. And I saw people say, would you send your child? Hell no, I wouldn't send my child to no Donda Academy. Are you kidding? Are we serious? And then wait, what am I saying? I'm I'm literally, we are literally in conversation with a sister who knew that sister and who helped that sister get her story out in the world. How, how do you feel about that? We've, we've talked about this before, but it was like last year. I know you don't say too much about, but I mean. Gonna... All, all, all of that is true. And none of this, and and people, none of this would be happening if she were alive. I promise you. You said that. Before. You know, but that said, is this how you honor your mother? Your grandparents that were arrested during the civil rights movement? Is this how you honor your father? Your grandparents on that side? Is this is this an honorable thing? And then you want to talk about Kim Kardashian raising black children, but you know, and then you want to bring in God and the devil. Mm. You know what example is it? I mean, so there's a lot of, but again, you can't reason with with a child, or should we be uh, reasoning with the seven year old? I feel like no, the well, seven year old doesn't make decisions. Western society does that. I mean, in other words, the whole structure of the society, first of all, is fixated on youth, which tells you right now you shouldn't be listening to the West because everybody ages. In fact, it is good to arrive at old age. It is a good thing. So that's the first thing, and then the popular culture engenders that. I mean, who in the hell listens to a seven or eight-year-old singing on the good ship Lollipop? This country, when you stick Shirley Temple in front of them. In other words, it's oriented around children and then the black children following the line. I mean, and, and then the damage, of course, is in real life. Michael Jackson should not have been singing them grown man songs at seven years old. And now you see what happens. <laughs> you know what now, and you said we shouldn't be listening to the West. Uh, there was no just like the Kanye West. Uh, let me let me. Come on. I had Pinky Cole, uh, the slutty yeah, video yeah. on my show yesterday. Yeah, she's, like, she's doing all of the things. So, so, out so, she just opened Atlanta. a door in Brooklyn, she's about to open one in Harlem. Uh, slutty vegan, and she just she's getting married and she just had two babies 11 months apart. Which for her, and I'm you know, I'm having this conversation because for her, it's she never thought it would be possible, right? Because she's you know. She, the men, and so I'm having this conversation with Dante, who's a relationship expert, and he was like, well, she found her equal. And I was like, mm, it's not about, that's a that's a very Western way, the, the equals, and, and, and she's an alpha woman, and he's an alpha man. I was like, no, 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 no. I said, the problem in this country is that Black men have uh, taken the white male power structure as their model for manhood when it's just the opposite, right? So so until we can dismantle that and start to look at each other as human beings who are in partnership and in community and that we're building things together, and that's what he found in this man. It wasn't alpha, this and that. It was this man has his own business. She has hers. They are in the same industry. He understands her struggle. She understands his. They met on, and he ain't even a vegan, so he gets to be his whole complete self. She's her whole complete self. But they found common a common ground. But more importantly, she said, he gives me butterflies. I was like, come on through, butterflies. She was like, he, I've never met anyone that gave me butterflies, that made me come on. have butterflies. And for, I was like, that's the goal. <laughs> you all know, all well, I, I say all this to say, you know, Dr. Cars, as we're processing this, and, and we are all commenting, because I've seen everybody commenting on it, because it's, there's a catharsis in it as well, because you're, you're saying I'm not that I'm not that messed up and look what he's doing. But we we haven't even controlled our own environment. So I just I don't know where where we should go on this Kanye complex uh, and all of that. And is he, you know, for years from George Bush doesn't care about black people to you don't have to answer sway like he's become 
this mm. caricature of, of nonsense that we still support with you know, our you, I know you must have met him. I've never met him. I met him. I, I shared this with my, my class yesterday. You know, when I was working with uh, Dr. West, she she um, set up a meeting because she was like, you know, I think you would be good to work with him on his book because he was doing a book. Uh, so I went to his hotel for an hour and for the entire hour, he could never look me in my face. Oh, yeah, that's not unusual. Could never make eye, eye contact. And yeah. I'm like, well, you know, it's like, so I'm sitting there and in my mind, I was like, this is weird. Something's wrong with him. And that's why. And, and she she knows something's wrong with him. She knows, you know, y'all y'all know when y'all raising children. Oh, mama know, mama know her baby. Yeah. But you, so you're going to do everything in your power to, you know, jump on a grenade, kick it out the way. You know? No question about yeah, it. You know, so she was doing that masterfully, you know, because, no you know, even the narrative around being a genius, we give genius geniuses uh, the, the past to be eccentric. Is that that's what we call it? Eccentric? That's what the West calls it. I mean, that's what the social structure calls it. Asa Hilliard would say that, Amos Wilson, you know, all children are geniuses and black children are geniuses, often even by the indices of these people who hate us, we outperform all these other babies. So the question then becomes, how you mess our children up from birth to the time you got them locked up or suspended or at the bottom of the class, you messed them up because they came here as geniuses. So that's really the trick. The trick isn't that geniuses are outliers. The trick is that we're all geniuses. And Dick Gregory will let you know that too. Oh no! Question. I'm just thinking about my, you know, <laughs> what I'm talking about. But so, where, where, where should what, what are you doing well, with your classes? Because I know you teach, you know. Yeah. Well, well, you know, our young people, my okay. my students know that we only deal in distractions as teachable moments, so we don't really use them as they don't center our analysis, but we. Uh, we have to talk about them because they exist and they're going on. And in that spirit, in that regard, and parenthetically, I know folks are like, we talked about this on in office hours on Monday night in Nubia. Uh, we all talked about it. And I just want to, you know, at, at pause for just, you know, 10 seconds and thanks said Miles uh, and his family uh, for giving us some a full scale report out of Salvador Bahia in Brazil, where they are, of course. Um, and where he lives, you know, writing for the hub and part of this this work that we are all doing together now, but walking us through what's going on there. Uh, Bonzaro, uh, the the fascists, the Trump, uh, so they call him Trump of the tropics, whatever. White nationalists uh, avoided being knocked out in the first round of presidential elections, which could be could be anticipated. But now he's trying to rally. He's shown some strength in some areas that he hadn't anticipated, but said shout out brother thank you for walking us through what's going on down there as it relates to african people and it said reminded us the largest number of african people in any one country in the world uh, number two number one is nigeria number two is brazil and the majority of people down there are of african descent and increasingly more of them are identifying as african very important just wanted to to, to mention that um but and people were asking, of course, Monday night, you know, because I've been trying to figure out where we're going to place this introduction to Africana studies class using our conceptual categories in Nubia to join the growing roster of courses we're offering. And I think and I think what I said on Monday night, I've been messing with this for a month and toying with the curriculum, toying with the with the syllabus, got it pretty much done, the readings and everything really said, you know, probably take half of the time on Monday nights 
and office hours and do the course for the first hour and then just kind of open it up. So not a radical change, but I, I'll tell you all, and for those of you who are not in the space, you know, on Monday nights, I think we started with the format we've kind of done for the last several weeks, which is we kind of open up Reyes and I, or, or you prof and I, we sit and we kind of have an opening conversation and then, and then folk come in and have that conversation. Remember during the pandemic before there was a Nubia or a native, when we were going live in this space, uh, we would do that here. Well, we do that there now. People come in and, you know, from all over the world. I mean, really, it's really, really transformative in so many ways. But at any rate, we'll continue to do that. But when we back in this January, we said, you know, let's put let's let's throw a text in the mix. Let's throw a book in the mix. And more people than in more people at one time than any formation that I'm aware of ever reading and discussing in community books that we talk about but rarely get a chance to engage beyond an individual or maybe a book club and now the book club thing is popular right oprah's book club which is not a book club at all but a, but a marketing device and then there's stuff like real red black girl and you know no names book club but when you've got 1200 people 1300 people together over the course of several weeks reading discussing chewing through critiquing learning from engaging with an ancestor like octavia butler with the parable series um the parable duo the, the two books you know soaring talents when you've got people reading and discussing where do we go from here chaos and community not a panel where you got people talking about no 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 we're all reading this page by page the miseducation of the negro as many times as i've read it i've never read it with a thousand people or more than that and going through page by page and letting it talk back to us transforms the way we think of Woodson's work. Woodson's work, we saw, yeah, you know, Woodson wrote Miseducation. Yeah, but that last appendix where he says, what's in a name? And he goes through the naming controversy in 1933. He said, what should we call ourselves? Well, you know, and now people go out and have conversations that, well, you know, in Carter G. Woodson, well, yeah, but what do we call ourselves? Well, he writes about that. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at this. Oh my gosh. Du Bois and so forth. So, so that piece which emerged organically out of conversations we were having in office hours, you know, bringing the class into that Monday space allows us to continue the rhythm, continue that growing rhythm with thousand people, 12, 1300. I mean, reading Blake, you know, my man, Larry uh, Crow, he and sister Olabisi who came in, John Jennings came in. We're talking about Octavia Butler. I mean, I can't even, I won't even go through that. Y'all know Nubians and those of you who don't know, you better ask somebody, you know, so I just say, as the kids say, I K Y K Y anyway. So if you know, you know, right. If I K Y Y K, if you know, you know, but, and it isn't exclusionary. I'm not saying it to be exclusionary. I'm saying it to say we are maintaining this governance space. So when you're ready, come on. And uh, in the words of, you know, Holland, Dozier, Holland, come get these memories. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I figured today we might, take in the spirit of that text-based conversation so we're doing something in common that would allow us to resonate and then have a conversation with a jump off point because that's what texts can do if they're used appropriately they don't have they can anchor a conversation they can open a conversation so that's what we'll be doing is 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 we put this introduction to africana stage class not this week i think we're going to continue in the rhythm we've had the last month or so in office hours but I really think, and we'll talk about more this more on Monday night, that we're going to start that class, not this Monday, but a week from Monday. That'll give me time to load, you know, get your ass and load up the, the readings, load the syllabus so we can track 
and I want it to be flexible enough so that you know I can tell everybody we're going to part one of the class. It's going to be two parts, and you know we started this work with the with the conceptual categories, um, the framework, the Africana Studies framework. And let's be very clear: if you don't have a methodology that is anchored in Africana ways of knowing, you are not doing Africana studies. I don't really care. And uh, I'm not mad about it at all. In fact, I would love to have that public conversation with whoever wants to have it. I'm an African American studies. No, no, you're really not. But I mean, if you're at the university, that, of course, in our framework is kind of irrelevant because, you know, and we talked about this a little bit at the writers conference um, and, and really shout out to um, our sister, um, Kiaga Yamada Taylor. Um, who was at Northwestern University. Before that, she was at Princeton. You know, she won the MacArthur Grant. And they did giving out this MacArthur Grant to some interesting people. I said, you know, that's not your friend, right? And so I know these people are desperate. When you, you know the social structure folks are desperate when they start giving out money to people who ain't on their team. Because at that point, they're trying to rein them back into their team. I'm going to say something more about that in a minute. We talk about a more Barack in the context of a brother who made transition, who I opened my remarks at the conference up by acknowledging two ancestors, Emory Joel Tolbert, the historian who made transition on the fourth, and right before him on the third, uh, brother Charles Fuller, uh, the playwright who wrote a soldier's play, Zoo Man in the Sign. Uh, but anyway, um, so I, I really want to lift Kianga because she made a, a point near the end of the panel we were doing when she talked about the fact that these universities are all neoliberal constructions. I don't care whether they're HBCUs, HWCUs, they're all formations. And, you know, both of us work at, at the, in these places. And she said, but all of them are sites of struggle, meaning that when you're there, you're not there to reinforce the hierarchy. You're there to, to get what you can out of there, get whatever tools to recruit some people out of there, but you're not there to lift that up. And I'm in full agreement with that. And we stand, we at Howard University having a conversation, but I'm like, please at me, please come and at me on this. And I'm saying, see, I don't even need that energy in my life. You girls don't come in here at me because I'm embarrassed you in front of everyone. That's that feeling that Kanye elicits, but I'm going to say less about that. The point is that that's on the periphery now. So as we're doing our class, Yes, we have a syllabus. Yes, we'll have a tracking. We'll have readings, but we have to have the flexibility because the university is in our model. The model is where it should be, the original um, intent of Black studies, which is the community. Mm -hmm. These places we call universities are just places we can go get stuff from, but the center is us. So as we're doing this, you know, part one, there's a part one and a part two. But what I'm doing, even in the class, uh, the introduction to African States class, I teach at Howard every semester. Uh, one of the classes I teach, that's always one. And then the other ones get added. But um, I'm kind of workshopping some of the stuff we're doing. And remember, I said we would track the two together. But increasingly, what I'm realizing is we're going to need to be more flexible because part one will take us through one by one each of the conceptual categories. And then part two, we're going to use what we call framing questions to go through our historical memory and apply those conceptual categories. Now I saw that as a pre as a prelude to the Kanye piece. The texts will allow us to have a common reading, which is what really sparked months of conversation with those books that we went through. And we, we're going to add that back in now. Um, so we get the best of that rhythm. Cause I, I mean, I, it was really transformative in, in so many ways. So to, today I thought, we would take a page from that rhythm we have in office hours when we were going through common text together and, and, and share a text together on the Kanye issue. This is from today's Financial Times. 
which by the way, all the Nigerians in here, or if you're coming in from Lagos or Port Harcourt, and I, I want to know more about this sister here, Mama Nikkei, uh, turning textiles into women's livelihoods. They did a full spread on this sister. Victory lap, and it ain't Nike. It ain't even Nike in Greek. <laughs> in the attic Greek, and that's the thing, Professor Hunter, we would, uh, Obingo, we would learn Metanetra for a couple of hours, and then the students would go home, and then the four of us, sometimes five of Deb Heard was there. My girl Deborah Heard, who was finishing up, who we're going to get with us. In fact, I hope she can go with us because her area of study is Nubia. PhD, uh, PhD at the University of Chicago. She does Sudan, strict, straight Sudan, and she's an expert in Metanetra. We know each other since we were 18 year old freshmen at Tennessee State in the marching band. But she's uh she's teaching now at the University of Nebraska. But I think she'll probably be with us this summer too. This is a beautiful thing when you get black women and black men who are experts on black and on this stuff that we need to know and they community. Chattanooga girl, my girl. But at any rate, uh, she'll tell you we were taking attic. Obenga said, Okay, y'all, we learned metanet. She said, I'm gonna give y'all some more language still. This is a savant in languages, as I told y'all before. I go in his office and he in there humming and rocking and scribbling on some uh typing paper. What you doing, man? I'm learning Hebrew. While I was waiting for you, what? <laughs> what you doing? What? So I'm saying, when you getting baby, you getting that level of engagement. You understand? Know uh, but he said, "Okay, y'all, y'all tired." Now, what am I supposed to say with Baba Hamlet and my Akazi is the blackest of all? You can't say you tired. Although now with this nap ministry, I'm had to re have rethought that. But I was young. He was not though. This is the crazy thing. It'd be like nine o'clock. He said, "Let's go upstairs and do some Greek." Huh? Yeah, you need to learn some Greek because y'all around here using this English language. You need to know some Greek. So we would learn Attic Greek. That's when you realize that Nike is not Nike, but Nikkei anyway in Attic Greek. But her name is Nikkei, but it's not really Nikkei. That's a uh, that's a short, uh, shorten of uh, Chief Onyenike. I'm sorry, Chief Oyenike Monica Davies Okundaye. This is her. This is in today's Financial Times. She has made a whole look at that head wrap. Mm. <laughs> she and the, you know what these things and she's really grounded in Yoruba ways of knowing so uh oshun yemiya very heavily and she got the, she got the the, the 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 whisk of power and you understand this is west african but when we go to kemet you're gonna see that same flask with that cow tail or that horse tail in it you're gonna see the same one in the grasp of the pharaoh this is what Sheikh out the joke would say the cultural unity of africa y'all stop saying oh, y'all talking about egypt you from west africa see you've opened your mouth and your entire brain is on display and that's good because now we can do some brain surgery not to Ben Carson kind because he think brain in the pyramids okay bro you stick to brains in fact go help your brother in Georgia he probably needs some brain surgery but no when the more you know you more you understand there's a cultural unity in how they use that staff of power but the thing that, that uh, and I'm gonna go to the piece I want to read together we have a common text the reason I'm just putting this up is because this sister here these are some of the other things that you know she's involved in but here those things that she has, including her head wrap, are made primarily of recyclables. Recyclables, she said. Here, let me see if I can find. Uh, she said, uh, the, the, the article starts, Nikkei Davies Okundaye's headdress is more than 12 inches high, and even the underwhelming medium of Zoom cannot reduce its glory. A tower of black handwoven fabric, it is part headwear, part artwork embellished with the same red beads that form a stiff collar that sits over her dress. Now, I ain't gonna get into the whole red because when you, anyway, that's the whole thing. 
She says, we make these beads from recycled water bottles, she says, then dye them. We take the stuff that litters the rivers and clogs up the gutters and bring it back to life. Mama Nike, as Chief Oyenike Monica Davies Okundaye is most often known, is speaking to me from her five-story building in Lagos, which she completed in 2008 and which houses an art gallery, a craft shop, as well as a private textile museum and a room dedicated to objects made from recycled plastic and metal. And then it goes on. She put people to work. And this sister here has been through all the stuff that we have to examine in terms of Africa and our ways of knowing. And some of the things we have to discard, some of the things we have to remix, some of the things we can preserve and bring forward, but it's complicated, very layered. I, I didn't mean to get too deep into this because this ain't the text that I was speaking about. But she, for a time, at 14 years old, she was married by her father to a dude named Twin Seven Seven. Twin Seven Seven is this, is this major figure in Nigerian art and work. In fact, there's a whole big catalog I got in the other room on him. That's problematic. 14 years old. You understand? She she got out of that marriage um, many years later, a dancer and then an artist. He eventually took on 15 wives. Now, that's crazy. Now, she had four children with this dude. And then she came to the United States to teach the craft. I mean, so in other words, it's some stuff we got to let go. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and there's a whole conversation, vibrant conversation about that. But I ain't going to get to go ahead. Something must have. No, 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 I just popped in because. I wasn't familiar with the Financial Times until you introduced it. Now I subscribe to it. Yes. And it and I'm a journalist, you know, by trade. It is the most, you know, it's not perfect, but no, of course not. The the entree into the world in the way and what they cover. I like so how did you know, how did you discover and I'm I know there are people in the chat saying that they you know they have to get the financial times no, no. why 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 how did you find it who who introduced it to you reading. it's just reading in fact I made this point and again I had never um met Salamisha Tillett but I felt like I knew her because I read her in the Times but the New York Times uh you know with Wesley Lowry and a few other cultural critics right. you know I mean you learn from anything and anybody but Salamisha is an academic first so I said that to her when you know we were you know I was making introductions to the panelists so I, I've been reading the New York Times because I subscribed to newspapers since I was in Nashville. My daddy brought the newspaper home every day. That's what you did. And as you talked about, and you know, we are newspaper people. And I was joking today, uh, Thursday about that. But at any rate, the Financial Times was a result of Gerald Horn. I mean, there are times when Gerald has come like here to D.C. or in Philly or other places. And, you know, they send me to go get him. Oh, yeah, no problem. Gerald, if and it's funny because Gerald subscribes to all the newspapers, but you be riding with Gerald Horn, he say, "Oh, let's let's stop over there, where Crovers, CBS, where he gonna go in there and buy any paper he can't. He got the paper at home; they all delivered to his house. But he ain't in Houston, he ain't in North Carolina. He's somewhere else, and he need the newspapers. And then he read all the newspapers. That's what he does. The FT was one of the papers that he read." And so maybe about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I'm like, why you read the FT? What's the Financial Times is the Financial Times of London. And like the criminal enterprise that is the British Empire, it keeps an eye on all of its holdings and former holdings. So when you read the Financial Times, you're getting a lens from the, the when, you, when you read the New York Times, you're getting the poor American cousin that want to be the boss. You understand, and so they cover the world, but it's through that American lens. And as I said on Thursday, I said when I said I was in, in introducing Salamisha, I said it it takes quite a thing for you and Nicole, all the rest of y'all, y'all in a context where you are dealing with the paper of record, 
and they spin in narratives that have nothing to do with liberation of our people and you fighting there would get a little space to operate i can't even imagine not having ever been in that space and not wanting to be in that space quite frankly uh what that kind of struggle is because she's a cultural critic and i'm saying that's very different i said you read new york times like i said i told him i said i got the paper in my bag right now i mean so you know, frontline headlines, you would think that uh, Ukraine versus Russia, everybody in the world didn't pick the side. And in fact, damn near nobody in the world has picked the side. But the New York Times, I have you thinking this is the thing because it's propaganda. So anyway, the Financial Times is also propaganda, but it is a different kind of propaganda. It is old world Europe propaganda filtered through the British who are trying to maintain some power, still be at the center. And because of the criminal enterprise that is Great Britain, the criminal enterprise that is England, they feel like they have to continue to try to curate the globe that they shaped. And so when you read things like the, the piece we, we just quoted from, they want to maintain the standard. So New York Times writing and the Financial Times writing, no, as you said, and you're a journalist and you teach writing. I mean, you teach writing for journalism, among other things, and you're a communicator, Prof. So I know you immediately what you just said, I've never said it or, or heard it said that way. The standard is different because this this the British and they dealing with the money. It's the financial times. So it's just like military history. The military historians are often very accurate because they try to figure out who won and who lost. So they ain't in the sentiment. Then no, I want to know how did y'all kill us? How do we kill you? What would you? So the Financial Times is following the money. Every time you read the front page of Financial Times, they looking at where the money is shipped. Like the big story in this weekend is the whole thing with the Saudis and the Russians and the oil. <laughs> you understand? So you want to know? You read the New York Times, gas prices go up and people complain. Okay, let me go get the Financial Times. The British sentiment. This is why. See, the right. Times will give you the why because they following the money. The New York Times is telling you a fable to get you to still read the New York Times and morality plays. It's not a morality play. It's about the money. And so they are covering things that we wouldn't normally see even culturally because it's connected to this empire that they no longer own, but they're trying to still remain relevant in. I think that's part of the reason. That, that, that Russia-Saudi story got me thinking because I was thinking Gaddafi. I was like, oh, wait oh, a minute. Yeah. So so, so y'all, y'all big mad that the Saudis are like, we still mess with the Russians. And what, what is America going to do about that? What is Europe going to do? about? I mean, it's, it, there's all of these geopolitical things playing out that will impact us. You know, while we talk about social justice and all this, something could happen that none of this is going to even matter. <laughs> like, like a nuclear bomb. Yes. Like, and then we're like, oh, well, mm, what now? Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Like a bomb. And, and, and they, like you said, the oil. When this United States government took out Gaddafi, everything that has happened since then in Chad, in the Sudan, what's happening right now in Burkina Faso, all of that is based on what happened after Libya became ungovernable and all the Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab and them left Libya and been spread out all over. And here come the French. We want to help you. People became like, get the f out of here. Y'all got with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, the chocolate wonder. And when y'all took out Gaddafi, you loose this in West Africa. But if you read the Financial Times, they're going to show you what was behind that. It's it's all, look, Gil Scott Heron, I'm wearing Gil. Gil always say that natural resources will change your world. This is all the war on wage. And of course, the big war, the big wars that have emerged in the last few decades, it ain't the three letter word O I L, it's W A T E R. It's a five letter word. The water wars. 
are going to be the thing to watch. So when you see Joe Biden and them talking about, okay, we need to go to renewables, this kind of thing, and these hillbillies trying to stop it. When you see in England, when you look at this new prime minister, they talking about they're going to open up drilling and the and the and the damn uh, the science advisor to the British government. I'm talking about the conservative government that's unraveling right now with the Ghanaian over the exchequer. They put him on front street. Like, uh, yeah. I was like, whoa, he was on the front page. Like, front page. Front page. Mess. And it's like, why y'all put, of course, y'all gonna put the black man out there like he ain't following orders. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but, but even the science advisors to their government said, no, you gotta go renewables. Gotta go nuclear if you must, but do not open up drilling. Well, she trying to stay in power too. All that you can track in the Financial Times. Now, does that mean that the Financial Times should be state, uh, quoted as a gospel truth? Hell no. None of these newspapers, which is why Gerald, every day, reads the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, which is closer to the Financial Times. If you want to read an American newspaper, get the Wall Street Journal. You know what I'm saying? That's the American version of the Financial Times, really. The New York Times and whatever. And then, of course, with the internet, then you can read, of course, you got to figure out what the best websites are. Whether it be, and you know, if you got the language skills, you can read some of the Brazilian newspapers. Certainly, uh, West Africa has some very good pr uh, press papers, uh, websites out of South Africa. Even if it's the government, South African Broadcasting Corporation, you can get a sense. And of course, the United Nations was here last week, week before, in, the, in New York. And you didn't see any of that anywhere. Talk about distractions in the American press, but the global press is talking. I mean, country yeah, after country. Motley, uh, there was a Mia Motley speech. Uh, oh, no question. Knocked it out the box. And all the countries came up and did what they always do, condemned the embargo against Cuba. All of them. And then, you know, of course, that don't mean nothing when the United States, Israel, England, whatever. So now nah, we, you know, we, 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 you know, embargo. And then everybody else in the world, the whole world on one side, three, four countries on the other side. And then we following this Russia versus uh, Ukraine and NATO like it's damn WWF wrestling, which is what the only mm -mm, it's not real, except it has real world consequences. And that's not picking a side. That's just saying we have to stay informed. So, so we went far afield, but that's why I started reading the FT. And Sorry, Turkey, and because, we do that because I think many people including you know and i'm i'm in it we don't know how to navigate these spaces you know like sure. i was raised up in journalism but i'm indoctrinated you know so i'm having to you know shift and rethink all of this because this is how you you know this is how you do this and this is what you know you are teaching us to critically think about every shred of information that is being foisted upon us because it's being foisted upon us and to navigate it in a way that frees us. So I just wanted to just pop uh, that. I appreciate that too, Prof, because, I mean, again, I learned it. And that's what we're doing. We're sharing our, our, our insights. And, uh, and of course, we know that they are strat. I should mention one other thing, because one of the things, one of the many things I'm grateful to be in community with you uh, for, and all of us should be very grateful for this, is because you have been in those cycles and rooms, you can help us think through what, purpose they serve in which valence because the new york times of course is not the daily news of the new york po uh, new york post and there are iterations of that one in the uk the sun for example the sun is the daily mail that's going to be their version of the new york post of the daily news the tabloid joint and of course when rupert murdoch enters the whole conversation in the american media and buys the wall street journal the fear is are you trying to turn it into a tabloid murdoch's ideologue his children are ideologues 
They want to make all the money in the world, but they're trying to shape opinion. And people say, okay, well, what does this guy do anything? And here's where we get to the where the rubber meets the road as it relates to somebody like Kanye West. People ain't reading the newspapers to think about Kanye West. People looking at TMZ, they more people know that Draymond Green slapped the young boy, Jordan Poole, than even anything else. Do you know what about Russia and this and, 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 and the nuclear weapons? What about Joe Biden with the Democratic funders talking about Armageddon? I saw somebody did that. But did you see when uh Kanye had that white lives matter? Okay. <sighs> Read the newspapers, at least spend half an hour with newspapers. I'm not talking about the scroll through with your thumb, website, click, 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 clickbait, clickbait. No, go very deliberately. And now the fast times don't come cheap. This is one reason I, you know, money for me has never been an issue because I ain't never had none. And I grew up in a household where we didn't know we didn't have none until you left out of our governance bubbles and got into the social structures. And then people started talking about money in ways that we were like, huh? No. So when I subscribe to the financial times, it's a, it's a financial hit. So you don't have to subscribe to the Financial Times, but you could just go to the, to the websites that are there. And let me just say this one other thing as it relates to resources. Get a library card from wherever you are. Get a library card. There's one library card if you're in the United States that you can get that. And I laugh about this because, you know, people don't get them and the people think you have to be in the country, in the space to get them. No, get you a Library of Congress library card because you paid for it already with your tax dollars. When you join the Library of Congress library, you get access to resources. First of all, most of the resources that you can get access to are public facing. You don't have to have a library card. But once you get one, a reader's card, they call it, you know, it's free. You don't come through D.C., go down and get you a, yeah, get your card. Why? Why not? Now, wherever you're from, if there's a local library, get that card. Because what you'll find, for example, D.C., Philly, New York, L.A., you name it, small town, they subscribe to the newspapers. Many of them still have print newspapers in. Y'all know that if you go to the physical library, branch libraries, but they subscribe to the newspapers, meaning they also have the electronic databases. If you have a library card, you can read the Financial Times in a lot of places. You don't have to subscribe. Get you a library card. Log in and go. All right. Now, public libraries, essential. But I'm going to say less about that. We should probably devote a whole time to this. So today's Financial Times, Kanye West. Well, what's Kanye West got to do with the FT? This is... uh. The text we'll use today, Kanye West and the Age of the Unmanageable, Joe Ellison. Now, I follow Joe Ellison's byline. I'm not caping for her. I'm not co-signing for her, but I'm saying let's use together since this is a kind of a little bit. This is in class, so let's do it about the way you asked Prof how I would do it with my students. I haven't done this with my students because this came in today's paper. So 5.30 this morning after a nap, I'm reading this, and I'm sitting here reading like, huh. I thought to myself, maybe we can use this today. And then, because we coordinate this, uh, people say, we say we don't coordinate it, but of course we're thinking in the same rhythm. This is the beauty of this metronome that we have established. And it's bled over into everything, recentering our center of gravity and the way we move through the world. For me, this is my, this is my space. This is my space I share with you all, with everyone. This is the class. So what I do through the Monday through Friday, at the university has been enhanced even as it has been moved 
to another location with this now, the thing that I went into Africana studies to do becomes the anchor. This is the way it's supposed to be. It was more than a throwaway line when we said we're going to jailbreak the black university. You can't reform those places that we call universities. They are doing what they're supposed to do, even if in blackface. This is what Kiyanga Yamada Taylor was saying to these young people, which is right supposedly on Thursday. And we are still working those spaces because they become sites of struggle. This is not a site of struggle. This is the governance formation that informs how we go to our respective sites of struggle and do what we need to do. So I will talk about this probably with my Africana aesthetics class, my black aesthetics class. I love, I love all those young people, but that class in particular, because we're dealing with cultural meaning making in that class. And so I'll probably load this, scan it, load it, ask them to have it read by Tuesday, and then we'll talk about it Tuesday, but we talk about it today at the core. We'll do it at the periphery next week. This is Joe Ellison. The title of her article, Kanye West and the Age of the Unmanageable. This ain't the tabloids. This ain't the New York Times. This is the Financial Times of London. And as Professor Hunter just told us, there's language in terms of how there's a facility of language here. And that's a little different. Let's read it together. I'm going to read it out loud, obviously, but we'll, you know, I'm going to try to go not so quickly, but this is an unmanageable situation. That's a quote. Announced Ye, Y-E, formerly known as Kanye West, at around the 96th minute of the introductory preamble to the ninth collection of his clothing label, Yeezy, on Monday night, period. I'll put a footnote there and say to myself immediately, the answer to the question, why you wear that white lies back? Because he got a clothing line drop. Now, we can put that aside. Let's get to the issues. He was speaking, back to the article, he was speaking in a theater in the manner of a church minister. His congregation, a select group of magazine editors, stylists, and various designer peers. I even like how she's opening this up. She's, she's, she's a culture critic, but she's going to look at it through the cold, hard lens of M-O-N-E-Y. <laughs> It'll get you anything you want to buy. What, what was that song? That's from the hip-hop era. I can't remember. Uh, anyway, here we go. Quote, you can't turn the music lower, end quote, he went on. In regard to the show's lateness, his travails with previous collaborators, and his mission to recreate a fashion moment, quote, that you will not be able to un-Google, end quote. Remind me of Brother Gil. Remember Gil Scott Heron? The revolution will not be televised. When he says, you will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to tune in, tune out, and drop out. <laughs> yeah, you will not be able to, in other words, go with the distraction because the revolution will not be televised. See, Kanye wants the revolution to be televised. So he's asking these production people, you can't turn the music lower? He said, I'm trying to create a fashion moment that, quote, you will not be able to un-Google. In other words, I'm trying to create the distraction and move your center of gravity to this foolishness because I'm trying to move product, yay, right? Them ugly ass moon boot sneakers that y'all be paying a billion dollars a piece for. Anyway, not y'all. You know, I'm, you, in fact, I, I kind of shy away from the use of y'all because I think it's a pejorative like hotep that creates unnecessary division that we, I'm going to say we, because one of the reasons Kazi is the blackest of all is because Kazi assumes that all our people are involved in this. So when I get a text from Nick Cannon saying we're going out to Wyoming or wherever they are, me, Dave Chappelle, whatever, check on Kanye. 
I absolutely understand that. Now, I I wouldn't go if I, but maybe I would. It was my brother. If it was me, I would hope somebody come check on me. So that's a different, that, that is a relationship that is based on, you know them, they know you. Now that's very different than any of us. I don't know that dude. And I'm not going to let him harm in terms of his own health challenges or trying to make money or whatever he's doing this for. I'm not going to let that harm what we're trying to do. We're going to pour this clean glass of water. At the same time, I'm not going to cut him off. We got to be in dialogue. We got to be in exchange to, a, to the degree that you are threatening to topple something that is very necessary for us to continue to work this liberation work, to continue to do this work, to continue to, to fight. And this is a site of struggle. Let's continue. And I'll go back to the top of this paragraph. You can't turn the music lower, he went on, in regards to the show's lateness, his travails with previous collaborators, and his mission to create a fashion moment, quote, that will that you will not be able to un-Google, end quote. And here, Professor Hunter, that's what you say, is, quote, this is a God thing, end quote, he claimed, with his in his, quote, White Lives Matter, end quote, 10 t-shirt and sparkly flip-flops, quote, a dream that can't happen without the help of God. End quote. A choir of infants started singing songs a cappella. A model shuffled on to a um, crepuscular catwalk to walk among us, head to toe, covered in a knitted all-in-one. We're going to just set aside Candace Owens because we know what that is. Carnival Barker, look at me, buy my book. I'm going to say something crazy so you will continue to look at me, which is the whole point. We continue. Back to the article. The mood felt edgy unpleasant and pretty stupid that's joe ellison or at least i felt pretty stupid for having been at the show at all oh she was there we continued what possessed me to turn up for a right-wing controversialist who continually talks about his quote genius end quote shamefully i was such that i couldn't bear to be the one who wasn't there she says my fomo was such that i couldn't bear to be the one who wasn't there. Okay, somebody please in the chat translate a prop. Do you know what FOMO is? I know what YOLO is. Yeah, he is the regret. You want know to know what's crazy? I just what? used that. I used that earlier in the chat because somebody was like, um, can you tell us about the trip to I was like, you know, I get the FOMO. I get the FOMO, but you got to know that everybody's going to know all of the details. We will not leave anybody out. It's fear of missing out. That is what FOMO is. Somebody else said, I thought that was a financial term. And it's like, no, it applies to everything. It's fear of missing out. That's what FOMO is. Thank you. See, okay. See, you see what we're doing, y'all. So those of you who are not in Nubia, y'all not been office hours, this is how we read Woodson. This is how we read Du Bois and Octavia Butler. This is how we read Tony K. Bambara and Martin Delaney. Line by line, we're getting it. See, this, this is study. Study groups, study formation, not individuals. One of the questions I asked the panelists after I opened with Sonia Sanchez's 1975 poem, Uh-huh, but how do it free us? I asked each of them, how does your work free us? Because these are some of the baddest performers in the social structure I, regardless of where they come from. Mark Anthony Neal, my friend Mark Anthony Neal's at Duke University. Mark is like, you know, I have to remind him every once in a while in North Carolina that I'm an N-word from the Bronx. No question. His wife was there. You know, we talking. It's, it's a beautiful thing. At the same time, I don't have that pressure at Howard. But guess what? I do have that pressure at Howard because respectability politics is the same at Duke and at Howard because both of them are trying to get, you know, as Adolph Reed said, maybe it's not that you want to topple the structure. You just want 12% of the 1% to be black. But uh, but here, this is a different conversation. So FOMO, I didn't know that, but you just put that in and I'm sure now it res resonates. Ah, fear of missing out. She said that's why she was there. 
This is how we read the text collectively. Shamefully, my formal was such that I couldn't bear to be the one who wasn't there. Next paragraph, she says, besides, big messianic energy seems to be in favor. And not just around the fashion shows. Right now, you're no one unless you're on a mission commanding fulsome and unequivocal devotion. The tale of Yay, a rapper espousing his journey dressed in a mantle of white supremacy, was only one example in a long, long week of crazy. Now watch this. The next sentence gives you a glimpse as to, just a glimpse, because it ain't complete, but just a glimpse into how we should be thinking in terms of the things that transpire during a week and how the social structure media, particularly in the United States and everywhere else, but certainly in the United States, has us talking about this and none of the rest. So let me go back. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go without interrupting this time, back to where we started in this paragraph. Besides, big messianic energy seems to be in favor and not just around the fashion shows. Right now, you're no one unless you're on a mission, commanding fulsome and unequivocal devotion. The tale of Ye, a rapper espousing his journey dressed in a mantle of white supremacy was only one example in a long, long week of crazy. Elsewhere in the UK, Prime Minister was trying to convince us that she cared for social justice while sending the pound into the vortex. That's what we talking about Kwame Kortang a minute ago. While Vladimir Putin's game of global brinksmanship is pushing us toward the specter of a nuclear attack. What the actual hell? <laughs> you heard Prop, honey, you said it, Prop. We talking about this and the next thing you know, the damn whole sky could light up. Like, what the hell just happened? Uh, y'all talking about yay, and now y'all can talk with yay on the other side because everybody vaporized. All right. Unmanageability, back to the article. Unmanage unmanageability is the new world order. No one is playing by the rules. Guidelines and protocols are just so boring. We've reached that moment in our evolution where it seems people in power do just whatever the hell they want to, no matter how bizarre, unhinged, or ill-behaved. The failure to autocorrect extreme behavior has been trending. It's not that long since we witnessed the Capitol insurrection, after all. Was that the moment in that swarm of raccoon-clad revolutionaries? See, this is the other thing I love about the FT. They not Americans. You know what I'm saying? The New York Times would never allow a line like that if Wesley wrote, uh, Lyra wrote that line or uh, if Salamisha Tillett wrote that line. The editor would be like, eh. Yeah, come on now. I think there are at least two toothless voters in Alabama who might still subscribe to the New York Times. Or the funders went, okay, yeah, okay. But in the, the FT, see, part of the schadenfreude of the UK is when America gets something and embarrasses them, they, they can say, yes, well, very much, uh, pip pip and all that. Right. Because we don't care about England. Sure, you do. You wept when this old lady who was the face of empire got, died. And you don't act like you don't like it. But she called it raccoon-clad revolutionaries. That's what I'm saying. She said, was that the moment in that swarm of raccoon-clad revolutionaries that our collective sanity went out the window? From the ridiculous to the truly nasty, in the months since we've since, we've seen a cavalcade of dramas, from the Johnny Depp trial to the scandal of Harry Styles' spitgate to Elon Musk challenging Vladimir Putin to a single combat duel. Toxic stories have led the headlines for so long now that it feels like there's no sane human left behind the steering wheel. I can understand how I could feel that way, but you know, most of the world don't care about that. And I loved it, Prof, as uh, 
people uh, once again now that elon musk is finalizing the deal do what he was gonna do all along that's all gamesmanship in the in the courts to buy twitter and where should we go where should we go and people say you can come to newbie i'm like yeah I just, oh. yeah i was like mm, mm, mm. i saw i saw you said <laughs> you're trying to show people say yeah in good good faith you like right, hold on because, you know, think about a clean glass of water. You don't need too much dirty laundry. We could ultimately launder it all. But is that really at the heart of our kazi, of our work? So continue. She says that we are becoming more volatile and erratic was observed earlier this year by the critic Wesley Morris reacting to the New York Times in the New York Times to the Will Smith Oscars slap debacle. Oh, and by the way, Prop, did you see this trailer for this uh uh, maroon adjacent escape slave movie. I'm, that watching I'm watching it. Full disclosure, I'm I'm gonna watch Will Smith's movie uh, about a runaway enslaved person. Who, you know, yeah, I'm gonna watch it. Of course, but Louis. Then I saw the trailer. I was like, mm, he ain't canceled. We we'll come back for me. Come back. Come back for me. Come back for me. Because did you did you see Top Five? Did I see that? Yes. Was that Chris Rock? Yeah, and yeah, what's the right. name? The Afro, uh, the Bariqua, uh, what's her name? Uh, she's the she was dating Cory Booker. Oh, 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 um, Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson. Yeah, I kind of I like uh, Rosario Dawson's work. It's yeah. interesting, but remember the premise. He's a comic who's used, and I'm saying this is is this serendipity or the ancestors playing with us and just laughing. Remember his character, comedian, became internationally famous for making a string of movies where he's basically a minstrel in a bear suit. I remember, and I thought it was—I thought that movie was horrible, by the way. But um, yeah, but continue, continue. No, no, no. I'm saying I think all the movies are horrible. I actually enjoyed it, and I tell you why. Because if you start from the premise that it's all trash, <laughs> if there's something, but this is why, and this is why I say it came. And, and when I say I thought it was interesting, I should say interesting more than anything. Remember Kanye, the whole bear motif, whether it be late registration or the college dropout, he got that bear suit on. Now, I know all this, so this is a conspiracy theory. No, everybody calm down. I'm not saying it's all connected. I'm just saying that the serendipity is wonderful as a cultural text to read. The whole idea is you don't create this persona that made you famous in, in top five. He don't like the fact in the movie that nobody takes him serious. So remember, he makes a movie about the Haitian revolution and he's the lead revolutionary. The movie flops, yeah. it tanks, and him and Rosario Dawson meet because she's covering him as he tries to make this pivot. Fast forward, Will Smith got a movie where he playing a revolutionary out of Louisiana and escaping slavery after he slapped Chris Rock, who made a movie about not being taken serious because he want to make a. You know what I'm saying? And I'm thinking, I know this wasn't PR, but. What better setup for a movie where you want to play somebody going to be killing white people than slapping a Negro at the Oscars? I, I, I know you didn't do that. I'm just saying, I'm like, yo, you going to be a bad boy now? <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, this ain't Independence Day, in other words. I'm going to watch it too. The ancestors are undefeated. And we're living, we're living, we're living in some really strange times, uh, supernaturally so. And I think, you know, the more we lean into it, the more to be revealed. But um, no question. So this is what he quoting Wesley Morris, the brother who writes for the Times, New York Times, cultural critic. And I'm, I, I learned from Wesley Morris. I, I, I don't really read any black cultural critic in the New York Times for their perspective. I'm reading the black critics in the New York Times for so I can be pointed to things I didn't know were a thing. That's a very different thing because I understand this is what I was trying to communicate when we were in this conversation on Thursday. 
you know, the people who were in that conversation, with the with the exception of the elder, about to be 83, Herb Boyd, who was on the panel, um, with the exception of Herb Boyd, everybody else is in a different generation. Most of us were in the same generations. Uh, Marsha Chatelaine, who's a professor at Georgetown, did the book on McDonald's. I don't know if you talked to her about the franchising, of black franchise in McDonald's. She does work around food and culture and, and, and African communities. Um, she's a she's a she's a little bit younger than the rest of us who were there, but you know m everybody there, with the exception of Herb, who as a journalist, I'm sure y'all been in rooms many times together. He's written for years for the Amsterdam News, among so many other things he does out of Detroit. Uh, his book on Black Detroit, by the way, is excellent. Just the latest, and just I think he has now a couple of dozen books. But at any rate, everybody else is in that social structure world trying to get navigate. How much of your blackness can you keep? When you go into space and you got these editors surrounding you, you got the publishers surrounding you, you got the woke people who now want to transform the whole world. I mean, you know, my hat is off with a lot of respect to, to Nicole Hannah-Jones. You're going to try to be black as hell in a space where they're curating this because they can no longer run the world by themselves. And so the tension is that they're going to recruit you in to help try to run the world. This was a Mary Baraka's critique of, of uh, Charles Fuller. Uh, when Charles Fuller did a soldier's play. Of course, now I was thinking about because Charles Fuller just made transition. And I met Charles Fuller in Philadelphia. He's a native Philadelphian. Him and Larry Neal were very close. Uh, this is a brother who was the second person to win a African descent to win the Pulitzer Prize in playwriting. The first Charles Gordon uh, won it for something a uh, play called No No Place to Be Somebody. And Amiri Baraka, in critiquing uh, Charles Gordon, who was not a playwright, he said, This is the Negroes they give it to. And he said, I liked Char Charlie. Uh, Charlie Fuller. In fact, Charlie Fuller was um, was um, in fact he dedicates a soldier's play, and I'm going to come back to the article. But it's a good way for me to bring this in in terms of this question of structuring structure, social structure, and governance structure when they connect with each other or don't. Uh, a soldier's play, which when it was originally staged, November the 10th, 1981. Check out the cast: uh, Sergeant Waters. Adolf Caesar, same, he replies that role in the movie. If y'all remember A Soldier's Story, that's what it's based on. We talked about this a while ago. We talked about Howard Rollins. How, uh, Howard Rollins, of course. Uh, Adolf Reed, I'm sorry, Adolf Reed. Adolf Caesar played uh, Sergeant Waters, who was kind of like the Negro who did everything right, the sergeant who gets killed at the beginning of the play. Um, first class, private first class, Melvin Peterson, of course, Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington plays kind of like the Malcolm X character. In a soldier's play, he the black revolutionary in the army. He's the one who ends up killing Waters, right? Because Waters runs CJ crazy. Uh, who, of course, CJ represented in many ways the ways of knowing and the cultural meaning making of Africana, deep South, just a good soul, played the guitar, sang the blues, great athlete. The white boys loved him because he played baseball, but culturally, and he got along with everybody because he ain't really he's not bringing his cultural center into that segregated army space in Louisiana, which is the setting of a soldier's play. And Amiri Baraka tears all of it apart. He roasts Charles Fuller for a soldier's play because he said, this is the kind of stuff white folk like. You got the army guy who represents the way in. Then you got the uh, African CJ who ends up killing himself because uh, the sergeant then driven him crazy. Then you got the militant Malcolm X in the form of Denzel Washington who reprises that role um, for the movie, and then you've got because remember Robert Townsend was in that movie and so many others, but Patty LaBelle was in that movie about it, Soldier Story. But then uh, Baraka says, and then you've got the 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 uh, the sergeant who comes, the captain who comes in, 
who comes in the black guy who they don't white people don't like taking these orders from this black man who is the lawyer who is brought in the army military lawyer the judge advocate who's come in to come in to investigate this and he sniffs out the fact that it's the revolutionary brother that kills the negro brother for making the african brother kill itself and white people eat that shit up so charles fuller wins the pulitzer prize and amiri baraka in an article he wrote that was published in black american literature form called the descent of charlie fuller and into Pulitzer land and the need for African-American institutions where he engages in this critique. He says, they give you a reward for doing this. They then make, you get a movie out of it too, because they like these kind of stories. But Baraka starts by saying, and I liked Charlie Fuller. I liked him when he, uh, and by the way, Charlie, when he uh, sent a play in that we put in the anthology of the black arts movement, Black Fire. An anthology of Afro-American writing. This is a, one of the original copies, Leroy Jones and Larry Neal. This is before he became a Mary Baraka. They are Jones and Neal. They're on the cover. There you see them, Leroy Jones and Larry Neal. If you want a copy of that now, it is still in print. You can get it from our brother Paul Coates because Black Classic Press now publishes uh, Black Fire. But the play that, in fact, Larry Neal and Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones at the time, included in the anthology Black Power from Charles Fuller, who made transition in Canada uh, on the 3rd of um, this month. Let me see if I can find it quickly. Yeah, it's called A Love Song for Seven Little Boys Called Sam by C.H. Fuller Jr. This is a beautiful little play about these seven black boys who were sent into it to integrate a school in Philadelphia because, you know, he's from Philly. Um, and he and Larry Neal. And in the play, the little black boys, every day after school, they have to fight these white boys. These are these are elementary school students, first, second grade students. These little boys, these seven little black boys, who they keep calling them Sam, as in Sambo. And they have to fight these white boys. And then there's one black teacher in the school. She's ambivalent. She stays away from them except to criticize them about their speech, class issues, in other words, becoming involved. She herself fighting to stay in the school. And then every day after school, these seven black boys got to fight all these white boys. Elementary school students only going a few blocks to get home. They get home and Charles Fuller writes this play where when, when the one little boy who's the kind of main character in here, he gets home. His mama keeps saying, you let them rip your coat. You got to go back and fight. The father's like, I told you we should not send him to that school. He No, nah, he need. And then she and the mother is like, no, nah, he going back. He going to fight. And you ain't going over there to, to get interrupted either. So you see the gender conflict involved. You see the class tensions involved. We don't want him over. He, he shouldn't be over. So finally, at the end, of, by the end of the play, the little boys come up with a plan. They end up whipping them white boys' ass. And they pull the black teacher in because they keep telling her what they doing. And she's like, no, no. And no. so they wait till they she walks them out of the school the white boys and they cross in the street and when the white boys try to jump them they call back to the sister who's standing on the corner and now she's torn and what larry neal i'm sorry what charles fuller is doing during the play is narrating how this black professional teacher is torn because she really in terms of a class critique ain't with them little boys them hood boys but at the same time she black and when the little white boys as they're fighting turn to the black teacher and call her out her name say we don't like you either why in the hell are you here now she in no woman's land you know what i'm saying so all this is going to tie back to kanye and to the symposium that was in uh thursday in a second so um a soldier's play and i'll end with this he dedicates a soldier play to larry, larry neal larry neal was one of the great theoreticians of the black arts movement 
became an ancestor way too soon. He says, for Larry Neal, whom I will miss for the rest of my life. Now, you'll see when you read the obituaries of Charles Fuller this week and, and last week, they talk about him. He won the Pulitzer for a soldier's play. This play never made it to Broadway until right before COVID when it was revived. And then it got nominated for and won Tony Awards. It's going to go on tour. Now COVID shut it down, but it's supposed to be going on an American tour. Like I said, he won the, uh, the, the Pulitzer. And Baraka says the reason he won the Pulitzer, let me quote from uh, the article that I mentioned. He says, uh, let me see if I can find it. He says, with very few theaters to create our works in, to reach the black masses with the reflection of what it is that they are doing and must do with the encouragement and criticism that both us, artists and masses, need. It is those artists committed to break, committed to black national liberation who should have shouldered the heaviest load as far as the creation of such arts and culture institutions. Too often we viewed the creation of such arts and cultural institutions as secondary, working on the building of political institutions under which such arts institutions should have been able to flourish. Now, neither type of institution exists. The creation of such institutions, of black theaters, periodicals, newspapers, art galleries, concert halls, publishing houses, films, I would add, spaces like this, is the only thing that can save black artists from making the descent into Pulitzer land in the sense that what the Pulitzer people are rewarding is a world outlook that serves their own or is identical with it. They are not re rewarding writing per se, but ideology. Pause there for a minute, because we know that's the dance. That's the dance you do if you want to work with the New York Times, they're going to give you an award. Okay, that's the dance every year. Black people get caught up globally. Our friend and brother and elder Ngugi Wathiango did not again win the Nobel Prize in Literature this week. Some French woman in her 80s won it. Okay, fine. Nobody care. Who give a damn about the Nobel anyway? Continuing, right? You keep bringing up people who are brilliant, but also you can use to fight other people who are trying to build black institutions like Stanley Crouch. This book just came out this week. Victory is assured. Stanley Crouch, Jelani Cobb, our brother Jelani Cobb, who was in town for the symposium, uh, wrote the introduction. And this dude right here, uh, his former agent, I think, Glenn Mott. And of course, Crouch and... Baraka come to blows over stuff because Crouch used to be with the Black Nationalists and the Black Arts Movement. Then he turns, now they love Stanley Crouch. I think Stanley Crouch is funny as hell, but let me be very clear. I ain't thinking like Stanley Crouch, nor do I need to be recruited into this white-facing, why you keep trying to prove to white people that you are human and trying to use Blackness to do it? I, I see that Henry Louis Gates got another uh, attempt to do that out on PBS this week. But anyway, say very much less about that. Baraka goes on to say, he says, uh, without such institutions, without independent institutions, the middle forces among Black artists and intellectuals are left to wander. And if they are lucky, end up with Charlie Fuller arm in arm with Chemical Bank, objectively adversaries of Black liberation. I wouldn't go that far, but hey, I'm not Amiri Baraka. Shout out to the ancestor. By middle forces, paraphrasing Mao, because he wrote this during, well, I'm not going to get into the detail. I do not necessarily mean that small group of progressives or advanced people in any society or members of that other even smaller group who are openly reactionary the middle forces know something's wrong but not how to change it that's how i feel about a lot of these black folk some of whom are my friends who are trying to be loud and black and progressive and multicultural coalition building and transform society who are trying to do that in spaces that are absolutely not rewarding their work per se 
but ideology. Hence the question I asked to open up that panel. Quoting Sonia Sanchez, who had been quoted several times during that symposium. Uh-huh, yeah, but how do it free us? I see how it free you. You know, and now it's even more so. You can call white people anything you want. They'll even reward you for it. I'm saying, how the hell is that? Is it? But of course, it has unintended consequences. And I think that's the kind of dance that people are doing. They're hoping they can use this work for liberation. This isn't a critique of them. I'm going back to now to uh, finish this quote right here before I go back to the Financial Times. What Amir Baraka is saying about Charles Fuller, who was his friend, really acquaintance through Larry Neal more than anything, who did a hell of a work. In fact, the reason that a soldier's play was not uh, continued to be produced was that Charles Fuller refused to take out the last line of a soldier's play. He wouldn't change it. Here's the last line of the soldier's play. If y'all remember the movie, remember the great Howard E. Rollins from Baltimore, the great actor. We talked about him. We talked about ragtime. We talked about Howard Rollins in the heat of the night, whatever. Just, I mean, I love his the way he went about his craft and deeply grounded in African uh, commitment to black communities. We talked about that as well. Remember when Rollins is riding in the back of the Jeep and uh, Robert Townsend, I think, is, is driving the Jeep, a young Robert Townsend. And the white, he's driving, Townsend's driving the white officer. The white officer sees Howard Rollins after he has solved the crime. He's leaving the base and Denzel Washington in jail. And Barack didn't critique that, right? You didn't got to. And Howard Rollins is representing a kind of, I guess, upgrade of Adolf Caesar. Caesar, the black race don't need you no more, CJ, causes the African to kill himself. Rollins comes in to solve the crime, puts the militant in jail for killing the Negro, he's the 2.0 Negro. He is, you know, dark chocolate. He got the mirror sunglasses on. He, he's snappy, he's a lawyer. And okay, so Barack is like, this should be good. But here's why a soldier's play didn't go any further. Last line. He says, uh, he says, Taylor, the white officer says, will you accept my saying? You did a splendid job. Davenport, the black officer, the lawyer, I'll take the praise, but how did I manage it? Taylor, the white boy, damn it, Davenport, I didn't come here to be made fun of. The men, the regiment, we all ship out for Europe tomorrow. The black soldiers getting ready to go fight this white war. As John Henry Clark say, Europe fighting itself and they pulled us in. Now, Davenport, the black man, you came to say goodbye to me, Captain? Taylor hesitates the white guy i was wrong davenport about the bars the uniform about negroes being in charge i guess i'll have to get used to it last line the one fuller wouldn't change the black officer says to the white officer oh you'll get used to it you can bet your ass on that captain you will get used to it Barack was like, they wouldn't let him keep that line. Black people in charge? No, Negro 2.0. And that's where you see when a black person gets turned out of white heaven, whether it be CNN or the New York Times, they get black as hell. Some of y'all remember Don Lemon from the day before yesterday. But the whole point, you get black as hell. Why? You gonna put you out of heaven or you threaten to be put out of heaven or is it just too much? So my point is that Barack is critiquing Charles Fuller who was on the side of the angels. He's included in the anthology for the Black Arts Movement, Black Fire. And in doing that, what Baraka is putting together is, and I'll finish with the paragraph I was reading from the critique he had of Charles Fuller. He says, the middle forces know something's wrong, but not how to change it. During periods of revolutionary upsurge, they usually join in with the revolutionaries. 
but something during reactionary periods, but sometimes during reactionary periods, they can be swayed by the reactionary forces. You're human. If you don't have institutions, individuals don't beat institutions. Once you've moved into those spaces where these institutions that were put in place through the criminal enterprises that used our labor and a lot of other people to build this modern world system, how the hell are you going to resist that pull? Maybe the best you can do is perform as a public intellectual, meaning what? Sounding smart in public. But if you don't have an institutional base, this is why the value of this space is so liberating for us. I was very happy to be there with the Morning Spin Guard Conference. I work at Howard University. I know a whole lot about Morning Spin Guard. I've been 22 years. And before that, you know, I met Dorothy Porter Wesley before she made transition. Charles Bloxham made sure that she's the one who basically imagined and brought into being the current Morning Spin Guard space when it was the Morning Spin Guard Library. We talked about her. And, and so, you know, sitting there with Paul Coates, by the way, um, by the way, uh, uh, Sister Karen, Paul, you know, who was there, of course, uh, participated. He, Hockey My Booty, Dana Williams, my friend and sister, moderated that panel, which opened the conference on, on Wednesday night. Uh, Eleanor Trailer, another great. When we talked about Eleanor Trailer, when we talked about uh, Tony K. Bombara, when we read Tony K., the Tony K. said, I hope I write anything that is half as smart, a fraction of as smart as what Eleanor Trailer says in casual conversation. It's true. And Eleanor Trailer still walks the earth. So even that conversation, I was talking with Paul on, 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 on Friday, on Thursday, and Paul said, Hey man, where did you get that Atlanta University sweatshirt? Because Paul is in here every Saturday, right? And I said, Paul, what you mean? We were talking, and I said, it just clicked. Paul has a graduate degree from Atlanta University. Paul's a trained librarian. I mean, an advanced trained librarian. In addition to being a, 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 a publisher, in addition to having this grounding, Paul Coates comes out of that arc. He knows books inside and out. So when he starts Black Classic Press, which he talked about, y'all can go on Howard University on, the, on their YouTube channel. You can see all three days of the, 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 the writer's conference. But as he's talking, we're sitting there talking about Atlanta University. I said, oh, man, I'm a, look, I, I got to see, can I get him one of them? You know, I'll give him this one, the one I got. I'm saying, because Paul Coates went there and it gave me a chance to ask him about Vivian Jones. I said, did you know Vivian Jones? He said, you mean Dean Jones? I said, yeah, her name is above the archive at the place we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when I was in at the Atlanta University Center for the Ace of Harriet Conference. Her name is above that, that arch. And I've read about her. I've got the book that she published. She was the second person, the second black woman to get a doctorate in library science in the United States of America. And she went to work for the first one who was at Atlanta University, Rufus Clement. Atlanta University hired the first sister that got a degree. She then turned around and brought Vivian Jones, who had been in Louisville, to there. Vivian Jones looked out for Paul Coates when he went down there to study. And I was like, wow, man, this is a living genealogy. And all I wanted to do to a couple of uh, our undergrad students there, uh, education of Black American students there, Sam, or, uh, Sam Anthony, a few others, these young people, these are like 18 to 22 year old. And I was so happy. I said, I want, let's just sit here. I said, Paul, we sitting there talking. I said, I just want to pause here so that we can all acknowledge what just happened. That's it. Because I want y'all to soak this in, you young cats, because we ain't going to be here and y'all going to be here to tell this story. This is mouth to ear history. This ain't in a book. I mean, and it just, man, sent a, sent a chill through my spine. But at any rate, um, and at this point, I should also mention Phil Roundtree, as I said before. Phil Roundtree, who came from Philly, who does the You Good Man uh, sessions. He came into uh, office hours a couple of times to update on this. We has black men get together in Philly at Bailey Street Books. My man, uh, Anya Buile Love, his bookstore that they're operating there and they meet. They got another meeting coming up. Phil drove down 
from Philly to come because Nubian Nation is everywhere now, y'all. We were all at the conference, all in the conference, all in that conversation. And it just reiterates. So all that now, that was a long footnote. We come back to and finish up with this article that we're reading because Kanye West doesn't have a black institution. That, as Baraka is saying, you need black institutions so that cats like Charlie Fuller, cats like the people who are writing, working for the New York Times or CNN or you name it, have a place to ground themselves so that those places become, again, to quote Kianga Yamada Taylor, are sites of struggle. But they're not sites of struggle where you have to live all the time. Kanye is out there in the world free floating without no institutional grounding. I'm not saying that the world would be different if he was sitting here in Nubia or if he was sitting at Chicago State where his mama taught for years and Hakeem Abudi talked about the Black Writers Conferences that they did at Chicago State, which picked up the baton after John Killens had started the Black Writers Conferences at Howard back in the 70s at the behest of Andrew Billingsley and them who recruited him as they created Howard University Press and all that kind of stuff. And then Haki picks it up and continues it at Chicago State. And then right there, as you and I know, Prof, who takes the baton then and continues it as well? Our sister, because John Oliver Killens, who started at Howard in 1986, he starts it in Brooklyn at Medgar Evers College. And our dear friend and sister, who we support and are going to be in conversation again this month with, Dr. Brenda Green right. and Elbert Silver and them, have continued the Black Writers Conference. And I had to make that point because they were like, oh, Howard is restarting. I said, it never stopped, y'all. Just as an unbroken genealogy. Brenda Green has the baton now. So we're just rejoining this long distance run. So don't, you know, make sure you shout out Brenda Green in this. And, and they did, of course. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an oversight as much as a reminder that we cannot be taking pride or privilege as this institution over this institution. No, no, it's bigger than all these institutions. The core is the community. Kanye, who has access to that community. He's got, as old folks say out the Bible, it's 12 gates to the city. Shout out to my man, Daniel Black at Clark Atlanta University who wrote a novel of the same name. It's 12 gates to the city. Kanye could come in through the hip hop community because of course, Dr. Green's son, Talib Kweli, is, you know, you can come in through Talib or what am I saying? He ain't got to come in through, you come in through most depth. You can come in through any number of places. Your own mom was in this formation. How many times was Dr. Uh, West, who was a professor of black literature at the writers conferences that Hockey and them had at Gwendolyn Brooks Center at Chicago State? at her employer, who who talked about these things, who worked through these things. But Kanye's institutional support, clearly he's not grounded in institutions. I'm not talking about Rockefeller. I'm not talking about black labels. <laughs> Are they black, really? I mean, and you asked the question on social media, Prof, that made me laugh. Uh, a lot of noise when uh, when Diddy said he's going to donate that million dollars to Jackson State. And I'm trying, what did you ask? <laughs> I, I just I said at Jackson State, did the did the check come? Did you get the check? Did he famous for that? Did Howard get the check, Dr. Carr? I don't know. It might be the $10 million, Prof. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. But again, when he says stuff like that, I just keep it moving. What you think, Dr. Carr? I think we're on page 12. <laughs> I think that's what I think. I mean, let that man, let Sean Combs go somewhere, you know, and do what he do. Cause I don't know Diddy, I don't know Puffy, I don't know none of them cats. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so if if Kanye had a grounding, perhaps the critique that Joe Ellison is writing would look very different as he's walking up and down and sending people up these catwalks. He got this shirt on as catnip because he's getting ready to drop the ninth edition of his line. So we finished the article. Coming back, she says that he says there that we are becoming more volatile and erratic was observed earlier this week, this year by the critic Wesley Morris, reacting in the New York Times to the Will Smith Oscars slap debacle. 
He claimed that one of the most pernicious outcomes of COVID, this is Wesley Morris writing in Times, was not the virus that was at its center of the body. He says, Wesley Morris, but how the pandemic had ended up costing us our minds. Now, what's the irony in that? Here we are in a space that was created out of the pandemic. As you said, let me push record. And here we are two and a half years later with a thing that is so deeply fortified and grounded in and pure in our commitment to each other. Kazi is the blackest of all. That as we emerge, we are now in a space where as the world quote unquote opens back up, never going back to Kemet like we were going in August 2019, the last uh, August 2018, last time we were there. No, August 2019, uh, when we were there. This time we go, it's going to be so much the same and so very different because the vision of why Joseph Ben Yakin and when he was sleeping in the desert in the 1950s, because no hotel would put Negroes in there in Kemet, certainly no Nubians or no Negroes Puerto Rico like Dr. Ben was from. The purpose he was going over there for, here it is in 2023 about to take another iteration toward fulfillment in an unbroken genealogy. So when Wesley Morris says it ended up costing us our minds, no, in some ways it ended up unveiling the way we would free our minds to evoke Lister Bell Middleton out of South Carolina and uh, Asa Hilliard. So she goes on and says, Smith's excruciating behavior at the Dolby Theater, he argued, was the manifestation of a greater ill. We are slowly and irrevocably unspooling, Wesley Morris suggested. Quote, we've been made privy to all kinds of behavior we'd rather not see, end quote. With all due respect to the good brother Wesley Morris, who is we? We continue. Now, here's where it takes a Financial Times turn. I'm not saying my friend and brother Lewis Gordon, the philosopher, would not be quoted in the New York Times because he would be and has been but he wouldn't be quoted at length the way that Joe Ellison is about to quote him. And this is where we bring it home. Joe Ellison writes, Lewis R. Gordon is an American philosopher whose book, Fear of Black Consciousness, was published earlier this year. Man, I got it over there. Well, I won't show it to y'all. We, we talked about that before. Unless I showed it to you. In 2018, he was interviewed for an article about Kanye in which he tried to explain the singer's drift to the right following a controversial interview the musician had done on TMZ about the history of slavery. Remember that slavery is a choice mess. Quote, it's pretty clear that his psychological protection against vulnerability is to push himself to the level of a God, end quote, said Gordon. Quote, people who build up an edifice of pleasing falsehoods to protect themselves eventually lose the connection to certain elements of truth, end quote. Now, Ellison continues power, fame, and influence all come with costly baggage. Think about Amiri Baraka writing about Larry Fuller and what happens when you don't have a place to ground you. And even though, I mean, Fuller, the one time I met him and spent a little time with him, just a beautiful brother. I don't, you know, and so again, this, these things are complicated because he's fighting for the race, but he's fighting in spaces where they want the race to look one way, but it's the other way. She goes on and says, when I wrote to Gordon this week, no, he says, and while Gordon speaks specifically of the Black experience, his thinking reveals broader themes. Hmm, okay. When I wrote to Gordon this week, he told me, quote, I do, th I do think West's views are symptomatic of a broader crisis. The backlash against progressive efforts, especially regarding race and gender, is so brutal that there has been a return of the exception rule. Let me pause there for a minute and inject, uh, and help me, Prof. You uh you had uh, our sister and now professor of law 
uh, assistant professor of law over at American University, Angie Porter, on this week to talk about uh, our friend Katanji. Yes, um, and thank you for training this brilliant sister. Uh, you might say that but she came like that. So I'm just saying. <laughs> Angie Marissa Porter uh, broke that thing down in a way that if you were five, if you were five, you would understand what Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, how powerfully she schooled that uh, body uh, that she happens to be in right now, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. She, 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 ooh, it was, it was masterful. And she used your technique. So she, she credited you on the show, oh. you know, how Dr. Carr taught us how to examine, you know, and, and Angie uh, Porter is the only the first person to teach law in the country through an Africana lens. She's teaching a class this uh this uh, spring semester at American U. Um, so I know that's your influence as well, but no, yeah, no, she, she was no, on no, yeah. That, that she could have gone anywhere. She was determined she was coming to Howard, but the Dean of uh, American, Roger Fairfax, the brother of Justin Fairfax, who we see now, these journalists are walking every day. I had him on as well. Did you tell to Justin? That's my man. <laughs> that, see, you, you see, that takes courage because they, they came for Justin with everything. And now they're like, my bad. What do you mean, my bad? Do you understand all these people who are suffering in Virginia because y'all killed Justin Fairfax, tried to kill his career, and now this white boy is in there taking you back to the 19th century? Oh, you talked to Justin. Justin's making making his rounds. Yeah, he came through. Clay Kane had him on as well. And I want, you know, I was like, you know, seeing it, we connected on Twitter and he came on through. Uh, but to hear that Terry McAuliffe, D, the head of the DNC. Come on now. Participated in dismantling this man because he might possibly be the next governor of Virginia because the other governor. dude was in blackface. That's right. You know, so you 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 allowed not just allowed you participated in the in the destruction of somebody that you know was it was a lie, and right. it was effective because it saved the blackface dude, the white blackface dude. But then it gave us Yunkin. Gave and straight up because it's, you know we're all you know uh, we're, we're all suffering under. Under that, you know, what happened? You know, it's like high school students walking out because of this anti transgender stuff, the CRT legislation. He trying to cut back everything. I mean, all this because you tried to say this white man who was in blackface, and you had a few Negroes who was close to them. Shout out to the mayor of Richmond, LeVar Stoney, who might have been involved, may not have been involved, but now they they calling for his head and how Fairfax. And there were two black women, I'm sure, as he said, there's their DAs in North Carolina and Massachusetts prepared to investigate. And he's screaming to the heavens, will all of y'all please investigate these charges? I ain't saying I didn't have sex with him, but I'm saying this was not sexual assault. Please interview. Please interview. Gail King, shout out Gail King, doing your job. This is what Baraka is saying about Charles Fuller and them. You ain't coming out of no institutional base. You and your friend, okay, you got a billion damn dollars. You are, your job is to come in and do what these these white people think black people do to each other. This is not a criticism or defense of either of the sisters who brought these charges, but Justin Fairfax screamed from the high. We talked about it with Ida B. Wells. The man is saying, well, y'all please investigate because guess who got stuck with the bill? Everybody in Virginia. Everybody. Thank you, Karen. I'm glad y'all had. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, it was eye-opening. Um, eye-opening. I mean, but it, again, it speaks to the media 
the media. I mean, getting back to this, you know, that's right. You, you pick up the Financial Times. This this culture critic is telling us all of the things that are happening that we're not paying attention to. And the media's job is to provide us with the due north of what we should be paying attention to. And all yeah. we're getting is clickbait and things that are going to drive their algorithms for commerce. And everyone is looking for those dollars and none of it makes any sense because we're sitting here uninformed, right? And it's not necessarily our fault. No. We, we do have to do extra work and, it, and it's out there. The information's out there, but who wants to do that? Well, Dr. you do. Yeah, I, I do, do. You do, but it's not a lot of it's people not, that want to do the work. It's a lot, but I mean, it's, it's not enough yet, yeah, but yeah. as we say, Kazi is the blackest of all. You just passed the eight year of doing it in a space that is reaching. And, and like I said, you called the hottest show in the galaxy. I called the hottest show in the universe because it is. And, 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 you know, and it's emerging as well. And then for the last two and a half years, we've been doing it here. And for the last most part of a year, we now, because of you, have built out the narrative and Nubia platforms. So these are the things that endure. And so, you know, going back to my man, Rasuli, uh, I haven't seen Rasuli in many years, but I've heard that phrase so many times when Rasuli Lewis says, when I was an 18-year-old chasing this girl who became my wife and we moved to Newark and I went into the Saturdays program and I heard Baraka get up and they said, Kazi is the blackest of all. I was up saying, I don't even know what this means. <laughs> but what it became was, it ain't never a whole lot of people, but you don't need a whole lot of people. Not at the first, because we know we as succeed as our open enemies say, oh, this is very interesting. Can I invest in that? Can I give you a grant? We good. We good. Why? MacArthur? Do we need a MacArthur? Do we need a MacArthur? Do we need a Ford? No. We are the foundation. We are the foundation. And so, as you say, you know, what happened to Justin Fairfax? And he's still around. And now it's beginning to emerge. And thanks to people who ain't afraid, you know, the sister who wrote for the Washington Post and said, I, I was I was one. And then they did it to me. Yeah, that's what happens. And now I'm glad to hear you and Clay had him in this space. It's going to emerge. And perhaps that changes the alchemy because there is a foundation. But it was his blood brother, which is the point, made the point of entry. His blood brother is the one who had the good sense to hire Angie Porter over at American when she was trying like hell to go into the black law schools. And he was like, nah, you, you need to come over here. What is this thing? This Africana legal studies? She said, yeah, she the only one in the country like you said, who is emerging, she's putting her genius toward saying, how are African people dealing with each other in this concept called law? And so she's developing this concept called protocol. How do we interact with each other? That is a ton of work. And it opens up all these law students and all these other folks who were looking for a place to stand to do that work. And by the way, Dean Fairfax's uh, wife, of course, was a classmate of Kataji Brown Jackson. So when you I see the confirmation, they were all down there at the confirmation. Wow. I mean, so, so even though they are operating in the social structure, they also have a foundation. So and I, I can imagine. Point that, you know, we're a quote unquote nation of laws. And Angie's point was there's no law that wasn't rooted in race, racism, like this, the, the founding the founding constitution that we talk about and all of the amendments that have come have been through this lens. This, this electoral college that we still use is rooted in the three-fifths compromise, which is again about what, you know, so like we we cannot have these race-neutral conversations no. around law in no. this country. So what Angie, what Angie Marissa Porter is doing, I think needs to be duplicated many times over. I'm grateful, but there should be no law school in the country not teaching 
racism, race as it relates to to no the, the laws of this country, because it's no question make any sense. So. Well, I mean, that is the purpose that was at least the initial purpose when you talk about Derrick Bell and Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and, of critical race theory. It's a very important space, and we have a critical race theory class at Howard. I don't teach that class. My class is race, law, and change. We're looking at the law, but we're putting it in the genealogy of Africana. So even last week, we did our chapter on education. Our conversation is not about fighting to deal with integration. We talk about all of the cases, all of the law, the way the policy was developed, but we're doing it while developing a governance lens. That's not critical race theory. So you're right. What Angie is doing is not critical race theory. In other words, I'm not spending my entire intellectual art grappling with race. It is important. We will address it, but I'm spending my arc saying, how do we make our contribution to human society grounded in the ways of knowing that we created? And that is really the objective. We get caught up on CRT because CRT has race literally in it. Race has got to be dismantled. And you can use CRT in part, but then once you've done it, what are you going to put there? And that's what Baraka is saying. You know, race still exists. And this is why Katanji Brown Jackson I think very importantly, and I know Angie walked through this, is how, you know, there are no rules because when she was at her confirmation, she said, you know, I'm an institutionalist. I am an originalist. And people are saying, wait, you black. How can you be? Yeah, but see, and this is what I love about it. If you read, um, listening to her, how she got gathered them this week, immediately thought about a book. Um, that if y'all want to know more about the 14th Amendment, you can look at it when it was drafted, a book called America's Founding Son about John Bingham. John Bingham was the Ohio Republican congressman, radical Republican, who was considered the major architect of the 14th Amendment. He was also, the he gave the closing arguments in the conviction of the, at the trial of the conspirators that killed Abraham Lincoln, John Booth and them. And he also gave the closing arguments in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. I don't, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but if you come forward to today, I'd say the closest you might get in terms of a fraction of Bingham would probably be somebody like Jamie Raskin, I think. You know, not even Adam Schiff. Jamie Raskin be getting mad. I mean, look at this white dude from Montgomery County. <laughs> this <is> Silver Spring. <laughs> he be mad, boy. Like, this is a criminal, okay? All right. Well, Bingham was the architect of the 14th Amendment. And when Kataji Brown Jackson says, look, I'm just reading the document. And I love, this is how Angie Port, she's been doing this since law school. These young people at Howard Law, and I love them. I tell them this all the time. They will go to the, what they call the conference notes. In other words, they will go to the legislative histories and the debates and pull out why this legislation was crafted. So what Katanji Brown Jackson did, strictly speaking, in terms of an American jurisprudence system, she went to the letter of the law. So what they've done is create a fake 14th Amendment by interpreting it through a white lens. There's no such thing as race neutral. Race neutral means white supremacist. Let's just be very clear about that. There is no such thing as race neutral in a racist society. When you say race neutral, what you're saying is we put whiteness at the center and we ain't going to say nothing about it. And the minute you say something other than white, we're going to call you and say you being a racist. But the thing we will never speak is white. Because if we say white, we then say R is a system that's based on the racism. Racism. So if you say white, you have made it visible. And the power of whiteness, the power of whiteness, particularly as it operates in a legal formation, the power of whiteness lies in its invisibility. As long as you don't say it, you the assumption is 
race is not operating when in fact the reality is the exact and utter opposite now that's, that's exactly what angie said she said yeah. there's no white santa there's just santa there's no white jesus there's just jesus right. it's implied it's implied that jesus and santa are white that's right there's, there's no white radio there's just radio and black radio or the term they, they developed in the 60s to say black without saying black urban Okay. Which is why, which is why the Urban Radio Network is part of the Sirius XM White. I mean, the Sirius XM Network. You know, you you don't have to say White Network because when you come in, you're not white, so they got label you. You know what I'm saying? This is the first black person to get it white because the people have been doing it all along. But guess what? We ain't mad. We ain't mad because we're beyond race. We're dismantling race by standing in ourselves, and this is why I mentioned. Military historians, for example, in the United States, the history of the United States, military historians, they go to the Civil War. They don't go to the Revolutionary War. They don't go to the War of 1812. They don't go to the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Desert Storm. They go to the Civil War. That is the, that is the fulcrum through which this project is imagined. That's why they make another Civil War documentary every five damn minutes. But when they go to political and legal history, they do not go to the Civil War and Reconstruction. They go back to the slave masters, Washington, Madison, Jefferson. They go back to them. So why don't you use that same approach you use to military history, to conflict, to legal and political history? You know why? Katanji Brown Jackson, Katanji uh, Onyika Brown Jackson, her full name, snatched they wigs this week because she took the legal and political history advanced. She said, we talking about reading the constitution, right? Yeah, we talking about reading the statutes, right? Yeah, okay, so I read the constitution, I read the statutes, and I read the people who wrote the statutes. Oh, oh chief, hold on. Yeah, I'm snatching because I'm bringing whiteness in. Oh, y'all thought I was, yeah, I didn't lie to y'all. I'm an originalist. <laughs> you seem to think that the constitution stopped with the first 10 amendments. I went forward to, I don't know, them 12, 13, 14. You know, it's the 14th Amendment. Yes, and it's colorblind. That's a lie. Because the people who wrote it, Hingham and them said, this is specifically addressed. This is specifically addressed. So guess where you're going to see that again? See, the, the, the genius, I'm sure Angie said it, the genius of this is, let me, let me not say genius, because genius presumes that it's extraordinary. It's not extraordinary. It's not extraordinary. When you go backward in time to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, read the Lewis Marigold memo that was written and drafted when Charlie Houston and them were putting together the, the strategy to kill Jim Crow at the NAACP. Look at the strategies of Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill and Paulie Murray. And looking at that 14th Amendment, Ruth Bader Ginsburg snatched Ruth Bader Ginsburg and behind her is Paulie Murray, whose memo she used in work to deal with Title VII, to deal with gender discrimination. You're based on the work of, of Paulie Murray, and Paulie Murray is basing her work on what she learned to how law and they're basing their work on the 14th amendment katanji just jumped over all you racists lewis powell and all that bs you pulled with baki and she yanked it into the 21st century and she said as dr king said be true to what you said on paper y'all been making up law i went to the record now watch what she gonna do it again here's the prediction students for fair admission versus harvard and north carolina case the affirmative action case she about to read that same meaning because understand, Lewis Powell, you punk, wherever you are, you ain't on earth no more. So whatever realm you in, when you decide in Baki that you're going to change the meaning of affirmative action from addressing past discrimination to diversity, all this diversity talk, that's made up by the judges. Katanji went back to the record. Justice Jackson, Justice Brown Jackson went to the record. 
And so when you when we get to the 303 uh, creative versus uh, Elena's case, that's the one where the web designer says she don't want to design that for same sex people. Okay, because they want to get after the gay marriage. You see this uh, this old ghoul up there in uh, Wisconsin who Mandela Barnes is going to slap out of the Senate, Ron Johnson. I'm against gay marriage. You're against everything, you shill. Well, when you hear the orals in that, watch Katanji Brown Jackson's judicial philosophy. She doesn't need to make up anything. She said, this is what the white boys wrote. I'm quoting what you wrote. And what she's going to expose is y'all been making up stuff that ain't in the statute. And you've been pretending to say, well, the statute doesn't say that. Yeah, I went to the judicial record. Ain't that what y'all do? So what she's basically, basically what she's exposing is you're going to have to say out your mouth. Well, I'm just a racist. I don't care what it, what they wrote. I know you don't care what they wrote, but I got to show everybody that because ultimately what's really at stake is the whole notion of judicial supremacy. The idea that we got to list these courts at all. If you ever lose that, that's what John Roberts scared about, bro. He's terrified because once people realize there ain't no such thing as a rule, oh, hell. Oh, hell breaks Luke at that point because we know the law can't protect nobody because y'all, the law is what you say it is for you to keep what you got. So how's it go? All of this revelation, all of this truth, matters not they have five votes and that doesn't include john roberts right i'm saying even if he has a conscience every now and then and says oh i want to be on the right side of history they have five votes and they don't give a damn nope well i think they might here's here's where it gets interesting right because that you're right comey barrett if y'all remember um in the uh the real case this well not the real case they're all of them but that moore versus harper case is going to be very challenging. Moore versus Carpet, Harper, of course, is and she talked about this this independent state judiciary, uh, independent state legislature theory. Meaning what? The federal government sets federal elections, but the states determine time, place, and manner. And so, if you want to destroy a federal election, you can do it at the state level. And then, in the case uh, that is coming before the courts in North Carolina, a Democratic governor is like, we're going to expand access to the ballot during COVID. Same thing happened in Pennsylvania with the Brnovich case. The governor and the Secretary of State in that case, Brnovich, we're going to expand access to the ballot. Well, the white boys, the white nationalists in the legislature don't want people voting. So what they do is go to Supreme Court, go to the federal courts and say, look, who has the power to determine time, place, and manner in these elections? Is it the executive? Or is it the legislative branch? And in the Constitution, they give that power to the legislative branch. That's their argument. The Supreme Court is getting ready to allow these white nationalist legislatures in the South, Alabama. Remember that that voting rights cases where we see Katanji Brown Jackson go in. They're going to let them be racist. But here's where it ends up, it seems to me. They're going to break it. And by that, I mean two things. Number one, the concept of judicial supremacy is really the thing that is being is on trial. And John Roberts is terrified. Samuel Alito, who is a thorough racist. I love Alito because see, I ain't got no investment in the project. Alito is the one in the Brinovich case out of uh, uh, Pennsylvania when they was ele- had, during the election, wanted to sequester the votes in Philly and sequester the votes that came in after the deadline because the Pennsylvania legislature, the white nationalists were like, you shouldn't count those votes. The only reason they were mailed is because of COVID expansion and that's Alito. So he was trying to, uh, Alito was trying to figure out a way. How could we steal this election? And he would he would deny it. And of course, he'd be mad as hell at me. But you know, anyway, we're not even gonna get into that because I'll never meet Sam Alito. 
But um, at least I don't think so. I mean, if I'm in a room with him, I probably not, I'm one of them Negroes. I don't like kicking in and shaking hands with out outright racists and stuff. I, yeah, I wouldn't shake Dick Thornburg's hand the day I graduated from law school and he was against terminating a woman's right to choose or to terminate a pregnancy. And I walked across the stage, shook the dean's hand, took my advisor, David Williams' hand, walked right past him. I'm not touching skin with you. My mama's in the audience. But at any rate, uh, so I think I hope I'm never in a room with Sam Alito and they try to force me to shake his hand because my thing will be so you, you know, I want to see what the devil look like. And I just want to look you in your eye. Where are your friends at? As long as Clarence and Jenny ain't there either. I might shake Clarence Thomas hand just so I can grip him up and whisper in his ear. Bruh, really? Your grandparents, what they think? And then back up. But at any rate, in <laughs> cases, you know what I'm saying? I mean, because again, it's a different relationship. It's a racial relationship. He is an African. He from the Gullah Geechee uh, Echo. Th that don't mean that he is not an open enemy of black people, but it does mean that in a governance formation, I got an obligation to whisper in his ear. Bro, you know better than that. That would go for Van Carson and Herschel Walker, too, although I'm afraid Herschel may be too much damage for him to filter anything he hears through his head. But in the term, and I'll end with this, the Supreme Court on the Supreme Court piece, you know, these cases are putting into question the concept of judicial supremacy. The Indian Child Welfare Act is on uh, the docket this uh, this 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 year, this uh, this in the next couple of months, Brocken versus Holland, where they're going to try to kick the teeth out of the Indian Child Welfare Act. On that one, they may lose Gorsuch, because if you remember the McGirt case and the uh, Sansa versus Iowa case where Gorsuch is like, y'all made a treaty with these Creek folk in Oklahoma. This is sovereign territory, quasi sovereign territory for them. You can't come on the reservation and do this. But then. He won in a 5-4 vote, and then they stole that seat that they gave to the handmaid after uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg made transition. And now there was a 5-4 vote the other way in the uh, in the McGirt case. And no, no, Oklahoma versus Castro case, where they said that the state and the federal government have concurrent jurisdiction to go onto a reservation and do whatever they want to do. And in that case, uh, Gorsuch sided with the so-called liberals but it now it's 5-4 to your point because they can't stop the train. They got a so-called supermajority, 6-3. But here's the problem finally with the supermajority. Once you kick the teeth out of all the protections, people stop listening to you. Now I've got friends who, you know, are adjacent to law professors and they basically search around for uh, legal opinions and legal scholarship that supports their ideology who have an ideological uh, position that we should not be relying on or looking toward the courts for these kind of protections of rights. I absolutely get that argument. I don't see the uh, utility in terms of a day-by-day -day approach to abandoning the courts. We got to use all the tools in our toolbox to, to, to evoke, of course, our sister who you brought into the serious family, of course, L. Joy Williams, who just did her 200th episode of Sunday Civics. Shout out to L. Joy, of course, and her crew and June and all them around her. She makes that point all the time. We got a toolbox. We should use every tool in the box. However, this supermajority that may run the table on all kind of quote unquote rights. And I put quote unquote rights there because there's a brother who is at Columbia Law School, a, uh, uh, the, uh, a professor who has written a book about the concept of rights. And maybe we shouldn't be relying so much on that concept altogether. But usually my response to the people who say we shouldn't be looking to the courts anyway, my response is, what's your uh, alternative to how the courts are looked at. And usually then I'm met with silence or we got to organize. I know what we got to do, but I'm talking about the world we live in right now. 
And what this 6-3 supermajority may do, they may wreck the concept of judicial supremacy. That is a concept in the law that says when the courts rule, we should follow the law. Now, we know white people have been ignoring the law for years. They ignore Brown versus Board of Education. They ignore, I mean, they've ignored the law. They ignored Plessy. Plessy says separate but equal, but they never even tried to make separate equal. Then Brown came, integration, they ignored it for 20 years. In other words, they're going to ignore. But woe unto the day that the rest of us start ignoring. Because at that point, you ain't got enough guns, bruh. You ain't got enough guns. And California going to do something different. Texas, Georgia, Mississippi may do something different. Louisiana, North Carolina, Maryland, where uh, next week will be on the ballot to uh, legalize marijuana. And right now it's looking running like 75% of the voters want to legalize marijuana. If they do it, Maryland will become 20th state to do it. And then Joe Biden, of course, who, you know, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's a tool in the toolbox, in Joy's toolbox, in L. Joy's toolbox. Guess how we know? We know because he says, I'm going to pardon everybody for these just possession. Okay. You know, that's like a fraction. I think in 2021, there were like uh, fewer than 100 people. I know it was fewer than 100. I don't remember it was 70 some or 80 some people who were convicted of federal marijuana uh, uh, possession. So that's going to impact a, several thousand people in the District of Columbia immediately who are under federal purview. So good for that. And it's only pardons, which means what? You haven't changed the law. But I think here's where the political strategy comes in. The political strategy comes in by saying, now that I pardon these people, Congress must act to decriminalize it, certainly take it off of Schedule 1 drugs with LSD and all this other stuff. Now, the question becomes, he says, I want the governors to act. What Biden is doing now, and he's only doing it because he's been pressured by people who vote Democratic. You say, people are shills for the Democratic Party. Don't do that. Don't me mouth, put your brain on display. This is about self-determining people trying to figure out which tool to use in the toolbox. At the end of the day, oh, thank you, thank you, 6,500 people convicted between 92 and 2021 and maybe thousands more in D.C., those people, primarily District of Columbia, because most of the federal convictions are not overlapped with the state convictions. And that's why Biden said the states must act, which means either Democratic governors and Democratic legislatures. The governors can pardon. They have the pardon power. But if the Democratic governors start pardoning, watch these white nationalist legislatures start screaming bloody murder in places like Pennsylvania. Because they don't want to decriminalize marijuana, even though the vast majority of people in the country do. And so what's going to end up happening is, as this federal judiciary, straight ideologue, goes straight ideologue, the states will begin to re-emerge again. We've seen this play before. It's called the lead up to the Civil War. And that kind of pressure, unlike the Civil War, you got many more non-whites in these states, including the solid Confederate South, who will push back. And this could be the thing to politicize folk. And I guess what I'm saying is that the only thing that's going to determine the fate of the United States as a polity are going to be the people who live in the United States. And these white people have mistaken the idea that somehow we are committed to the United States. The United States can go. It can go to hell if, if that'll come out of the mouth of people who you thought were patriotic until they realized that they don't have a Medicare expansion, that they getting locked up for small ass weed possession. And they say, you know what? Why do y'all think I love the United States so much? I'm only saying that to keep you out of my business. But since there are no rules, no problem. You didn't want it to come through voting and you tried to gerrymander me out of existence. We're going to have to take some other kind of steps. And I really think that should be very exciting for everybody. Because <laughs> I mean, as, as Dr. King said, and we read, where do we go from here? Chaos or community. Dr. King said this near the end of his life. 
we we just need to redistribute the pain. In other words, it's not like you're going you, you're not going to suffer any more pain. But there are people who haven't been suffering pain who are going to suffer some pain now. Maybe next week we can talk about this article. Maybe I'll talk about it a little bit on Monday night. That was Thomas Edsel wrote in the New York Times this past week about he's saying the division now is between people with college degrees and people without them. And he goes through this whole conversation that we've been having about the whiteness benefit that non-college whites have or think they have that's fracturing now and that that's only engendering more resentment. And when you combine it with the job market bottoming out, no prospects for the future, this hopelessness, it's only going to get worse. He doesn't see a way out. I see it as a possibility for us being, uh, mm. having, you know, having different kind of ways to build coalitions if we need to. But I, I know we've gone over, so I'm just going. Oh, no, I feel the same way. Let me. Uh, yeah. um, I just dropped the article, the uh, column. There are two Americas now: one with a BA and one without. Um, you know, the beauty of this space is it doesn't matter. Have you, you know, this is truly come as you are. You know, they say that in church, right? Come as you are. But, you know, this is truly a space where it doesn't matter what your education background is, how many degrees you have or no degrees at all. Nope. And, you know, the, the contributions in the chat, you don't know what, you know, there are PhDs, there are people with law degrees, there are people with MDs, no and there's people with high school GEDs who are all engaging in this uh, liberation uh, I want to call it a liberation leadership that, that right. you're, you're uh, powering in, in so many ways. So I just, um, we're having it together. Yes, we are doing it together, but you, you know, I said this to you when you wish me a happy anniversary. Yes. This space literally happened in November of 2019 when you came in on that Veterans Day yes. in that sweater with Ajwa. With Ajwa, girl, yes. I sat back and I was like, <laughs> where's this man been all my life oh, and then we continue to have these conversations that i'm like every i mean this is what your kids get to experience at howard everyone should experience this and you were gracious enough to come in and now thousands there's thousands of people on a saturday morning 135 consecutive saturdays to hear conversations wrapped in history and Africana ways of knowing. And now this class that you're going to teach, um, yes, you know, yes. and many of us have degrees that mean nothing because as I mentioned, it was uh, Morgan Freeman and Count Dracula and you know, in so many ways, you know, Schoolhouse Rock that allowed me to understand some things that school never did. And now it's in class with cars. So well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Yeah. Listen, and you made this toss by man. I've been telling everybody and, and sometimes I just sit with it when it's just me sitting here and, uh, you know, and think about how you have brought all these skills and experiences and gifts to bear to, to make this space. Cause what we're doing really is not different in terms of how we're approaching it than what we've, always done these are the study groups but what we didn't have was this we had the technology kanye is a master at using technology he got us talking about him on a saturday morning but at the same time you come into space and say i know all that world but i'm who i am and i have all this other world so i'm gonna make these worlds come together and you know we well, call you if i'm being honest isn't that why we acquire skills right isn't that why we <laughs> have the experiences that we have i mean like it's supposed to be so if I'm only modeling the possibilities for every everybody somewhere doing something. Yes. Everybody has some influence, whether it's just on the family that you have. So we have the opportunity to build 
incredible things right where we are. And it's, it doesn't take a whole lot. Like we've done this with just the people that are here. And we don't have millions of people in Nubia. We don't have 100,000 people. We barely have 2,000 people in Nubia. Yes. But, but we're able to, you know, we're about to go to Egypt. We're about to, you know. And, 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 that's, and that's a thousand more than we started with, which is yeah. you see how people are becoming aware and coming. I'm like, wait a minute. that's We passed that threshold? What the, wait, people want it, but we don't need everybody there. Right. Not now. I mean, we don't need, and we never need everybody all the time. Dr. King didn't have a whole lot of people. Rosa Parks didn't have a whole lot of people. And then the world changes, and all of a sudden, everybody was there. Bandwagon, bandwagon. That bandwagon times <laughs> get heavy. You know, That's right now, we like light nimble. We like them going around, going around corners. Yeah, no, it's no beautiful. And, and it's the people who hook up the stuff that puts the thing together. It's the thing that keeps us together. As you say, as they say in conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and making them run. Right. You know what I'm saying? We, we, the, we the conjunction. <laughs> conjunction, junction. What's your function? <laughs> I mean, so... But I, I should, I know we will. Give me about five minutes if you don't have a problem. Just to finish. No, no, Joe Ellison's article. I want to finish this so we can finish where she's going with this because it's just food for thought. It's just food for thought. Maybe we'll talk more about this on Monday night. So she says this. Remember, she's interviewing Lewis Gordon, who is a professor of philosophy. I think he's at the University of Connecticut now. He was one time at Brown, then Temple for a while. I met him when he was in Philly at Temple. Uh, good brother, Jamaican cat, you know. Um, interesting brother at any rate. He says, power, fame, she says, Joe Ellison, power, fame, and influence all come with costly baggage. And while Gordon speaks specifically of the Black experience, his thinking reveals broader themes. When I wrote to Gordon this week, he told me, quote, I do not think, I do think, rather, West's views are symptomatic of a broader crisis. The backlash against progressive efforts, especially regarding race and gender, is so brutal that there has been a return of the exception rule. That's where we stopped. Remember, you talked about Kataji Brown Jackson. That was the footnote. Now we're back in the text to finish up. The backlash, yeah, I'm sorry. The second is across races in which there are fewer people seeking political solutions to political problems. They are instead seeking gods. The lure of famous people with God complexes is that their fame is transformed into their divinity. The larger disorder is that there are people without fame who seek it through identification and projection. Touch the hem of his garment, which has additional meaning in the case of this week's silliness. That's what Gordon says. Think about that article that we now have access to, Thomas Edsel, who is saying these poor whites who don't have much are basically using these rich people who are using them, they're using them as an avatar. It fits perfectly with Joe Ellison quotes Lewis Gordon is saying, when you don't have stuff and you're not looking for political solutions to political crises, you're looking for gods and leaders. Kanye, people be arguing about Kanye like he's somehow their leader. Kanye is hustling, y'all. And then you want to make him into a god, and then he got the good sense to wrap himself with choirs and talk about Sunday and all his Sunday worship and all that. Yeah, because he know what he's doing. It ain't Sunday civics. It ain't what Eljoy doing. In other words, saying, here's the toolbox and here are all my years as a strategist and working in campaigns and being behind the scenes and seeing how legislation gets done, influencing that, and here's how you can do it and organize. She told a story the other night about 
alternative side of the street parking being about an index, a cleanliness index in the neighborhood that once she found out and told everybody else, you can actually change how many times you got to move your car, but you didn't know the tools. That's political education. That's what Lewis Gordon is talking about, finding political solutions to political problems. But most people who are beat down, they saying, look, man, I, I just want somebody to believe in. Here come Kanye, like, you can believe in me. And for two stacks, you can have these ugly ass moon boots I'm selling. And uh, white lives matter. Huh? What the hell are you talking? I like that. I don't like that. You're all looking at me to the point Karen Hunter just made. No press is bad press. Finishing, he sa she says, often when we find ourselves in a place of weakness, we protect ourselves by becoming more entrenched. And with everything so polarized and angry, people are quick to lose their heads. We're also more susceptible to easy credos and slogans that make us feel empowered. As the world becomes more heated and divisive, the messianic impulse has taken hold. Final paragraph. Like many who have wielded power and influence, Kanye now finds himself standing on a tiny stage. And while his show felt dangerous in its megalomania and weirdness, the world seemed just as unmanageable when I finally escaped outside. Mm. In other words, you look at this guy's T-shirt and we may only break a nuclear war. We arguing about him and Candace Owens and what they trying to do. And in the meantime, these babies got killed halfway around the world in this slaughter that took place. 26 school children killed and and people still ain't got no power in Dunbar, Florida, while the while the rich people getting that pump puffer fish DeSantis getting the federal money and Puerto Rico's grid is still busted, as is Cuba's grid. And in Haiti, they still trying to overthrow the government, the people, because they didn't put an American stooge in place. And in Brazil, they're going to, at the end of the month, have an election because the country with the most Africans in it outside of uh, anywhere in the world except Nigeria are fighting to get a better society. Lula da Silva, they're trying to put him back in power so poor people can have a chance at something. And you have all the people at the damn UN, and here goes the Prime Minister Barbados still leading the charge, trying to tell y'all this flooding it's gonna get worse and we got to deal with that and in west africa burkina faso they are they saying y'all gotta stop all this stuff that the united states and great britain triggered with all this damn islamic terrorism going on and in ethiopia they still trying to put together a country that was never one country to begin with and now you got this whole rebel battle going on over there and the prime minister of ethiopia is trying to keep it together but at the same time he's overreaching and making oversteps and here we are on saturday becoming aware of those things and how they are connected in ways that will free us if we can understand that we should come up with political solutions to political problems based in our ways of knowing, based in our governance formation, where we can then push out with our cultural meaning making, our movement and memory, also that this social structure we find ourselves in can be transformed and it ain't going to come by making false gods like a brother who probably needs some counseling and a hug and really, 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 really misses his mama. I'm gonna stop with that. No, I'm. I'm I, I wanted the pause because the mic dropped. I think it got run over too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm gonna share this. Uh, oh, yes. So we're giving homework now in class. Oh, uh, good. Y'all read this. Uh, be ready about... to talk about it on Monday. <laughs> yeah. You know, have your questions ready. Don't just be talking off of, off of your dingleberries. Be be informed. <laughs> like read read the article, and then you know, let's let's dissect it because Dr. Carr just gave a master class and how that is done. Mm. Uh, and thank you, thank you, mm. sir. Thank you, love you, love, love you. all y'all, and congratulations again. Eight years seem like eight hundred years. It, it it does, and uh, you know, I'm I I'm gonna say thank you. I'm gonna learn how to receive, but as you said, Kazi. 
Kazi. Uh, let's go. Let's go. You know, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so you know, the work continues and more work to come. So, I'm appreciative to be uh, hand in hand with you in this. And I'll see you on Monday. See y'all on Sunday with Dr. Senyata. God bless y'all. Love you. Love see you. you in the Nubian streets. Nubian streets.